John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. For the last 25 years, Matt Damon has been one of the world's biggest movie stars. And yet, in the first six years of The Cinephiles, we didn't cover a single one of his movies. Unless that is you count the couple of minutes where he shows up in Chasing Amy. However, in the last six months, we've covered not one, not two, but now three Matt Damon movies. Was this all part of our master plan? Did John and I suddenly change our mind on the guy and decide to make 2022 the year of Damon? Nope, <laughs> it's just how it happened. And yet, in a strange way, we're moving backwards in time from our all-star cast of Ocean's Eleven to the indie favorite rounders and finally to the film that truly announced this actor and screenwriter to the world, Good Will Hunting. With deft direction from Gus Van Sant, a beautiful Danny Elfman score, and standout performances from Damon, his writing partner Ben Affleck, mini driver Stellan Skarsgård, and of course, the great Robin Williams, Goodwill Hunting is as powerful and moving today as it was when it came out 25 years ago. So if you haven't seen it, it's definitely not your fault. You just have to visit cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Goodwill Hunting, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss the art of movie trailers. So that's trailers on Patreon and Goodwill Hunting with a very special surprise guest this Friday on The Cinephiles. Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them, Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host, voiceover guy in San Diego, California. And that's we, all you get. That's all you get. That's all you get, man. That's all you get today. Where are we what, off to here? Steve? What are you? Where are are you signing off now? Is that? I mean, like, <laughs> this is gonna be the world's shortest episode of the cinema. How do you like them apples? I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, um, 
Um, well, and you might hear the another the sound of laughter that doesn't come from me, which means we have a guest. And not only do we have a guest, we have a guest <laughs> that we have been trying to get back on this show. I guess it's been scheduling conflicts or maybe there's personal reasons. I don't know, but it's been literally years we've been trying to get this person back onto the show. And that is casting director and someone I've known for literally more than 30 years, Karen P. Morris. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. And it's not any of those things. It's just my being remiss and trying to find something that I wanted to talk to you guys about because it's hard to follow up something like All the President's Men that I have literally millions of things to say about. But I don't have as many things to say about movies. I like listening to you guys talk about movies. So... (laughs) Well, so what you're saying is, is that you you were looking for the absolutely perfect movie to come back for. That, yeah. doesn't, that doesn't sound like you at all. That doesn't sound like me at all, right? But one of the things that you said years and years ago, you said, well, I mean, if you ever do Goodwill Hunting, that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. And here we are. The movie we are doing is Goodwill Hunting. And this movie happens to be one of our most popular Patreon picks. And one of the people that picked it is James Kang. And I would like to hear from James. What made Goodwill Hunting your Patreon pick? Hey, John and Steve. My name is James from San Francisco. And the reason I chose Goodwill Hunting is because uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. Actually, the monologue that Robin Williams has about life experiences is. Uh, See, and I always go back to whenever I need to gain perspective on life. Um, it's just an, a movie you don't really see coming out anymore also. And it's just a, a movie that reminds me again, just uh, the beauty of movies and, and screenwriting and, and being able to understand what life is about. And so uh, I love this movie and I'm so glad that you're able to cover it. So thank you very much, James and Karen. Do you remember how you and really how you and I first came to Goodwill Hunting? You know, I was actually thinking about it this morning, and I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure we saw it together. And I want to say it was at the Arclight, but I'm not sure. I think it's at the Chinese. I'm pretty sure we saw it at the Chinese theater when it came out. And we were just both just blown away, wrecked by it. Absolutely loved it. It's it's still, I mean, revisiting it, I was still just blown away by how great it is. John, do you remember how you first came to Goodwill Hunting? Yeah, um, from it was in 1997 when this film came out, right? So it was my first year at Florida State University. I had not become friends with Michael Vogel and our crew of people. Uh, I was a friend with other people at the time. So I think I might have seen this one alone. Um, and if I didn't, I saw it with my friend Rain's car. And we went to go see it at one of these uh, one of the local theaters in Tallahassee. But I have a weird feeling like I went by myself on a Saturday afternoon to see this one. Uh, and I remember uh, walking out of this theater going, good God, like what an incredible film and what a phenomenal performance from Robin Williams. Uh, and it as if you couldn't love someone enough who from I think from all our youths was someone who we just loved f- to pieces for all the stuff he did. It was so great to see the promise of his dramatic ability finally come to fruition. For those of us who loved him in Moscow on the Hudson or the, I think, Survivors or whatever it was the one they did with Walter Matthau, where he had these like outbursts within these movies of real incredible drama that showed you he's got these levels within him. But the movies that surrounded these moments weren't that great. 
it was so fun to see a film actually be as damn good as his dramatic abilities. So I was just very blown away when I walked out of this movie. I, I think that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way because we had seen him be dramatic in Good, in Good Morning Vietnam. He's dramatic right. in Dead Poets Society. Right, great but point. The, yeah. But the main thing he's doing is being hilarious. Yes. You know, yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like he's funny, 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 funny. And then you'll get this moment of drama. That's not what Good Will Hunting is. Right. Good Will Hunting is really, I'm also, by the way, if I, you, you and I both love uh, seeing movies alone, John. Yes. I can't imagine seeing this particular movie. I just sitting there by myself sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> it's a rough one to see by yourself. The one where you're looking around. You're like, is anyone else seeing me right now? <laughs> Please don't <laughs> look at me. Some this is in pre-production. Obviously, we have to start with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Yeah. These guys are friends since they were kids. Ben started acting in TV in the early 80s. Matt started acting uh, professionally a little bit later. By the way, one little tidbit I found out, both of them were sitting in Fenway Park as extras for Field of Dreams. Oh, wow. That's cool. Isn't it? I know that. And what's so funny is they're just kind of coming along. They have a very solid progression. It's not like they just explode on the scene. It's that, you know, they are in school ties, dazed and confused. And then we get mall rats and Damon's in mystic pizza in 88, you know, that, and then he's in courage oh under God fire. Yeah. So it's like, these guys are up and comers, you know? Yeah. And uh, this script started, Matt Damon is at Harvard and he's got a playwriting <laughs> class. Yes. It was his final starts- project. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also dating a girl named Skylar, who's a med student. Oh, wow. And that's where Skylar comes from. She apparently went on. Oh, I, f- I forget what band it was. She went She went on to marry or date um, a guy from a famous band after she broke up with him. Wow. I don't know if that's trading up or not. I don't know what the <laughs> band is. Depends on how long the band I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that because I just saw it a few minutes ago. So I'm going to find it. Keep Skylar? going, but I'll find it. <laughs> And then he takes this project that he had started in this class and brings it to Ben. And basically their real inspiration is Sylvester Stallone and Quentin Tarantino, like these guys that wrote their way into success. Okay. So I found it. She left Damon for Metallica drummer, Lars Ulrich. Lars Ulrich? What? Before filming began. Yeah. Skylar, the the, the person that she's named for, left Damon. 20 years older? You Probably. don't usually drop the good guy for the bad guy. It's usually the way around. <laughs> you work out your shit with a bad guy and then go and be with the good guy because that was such a terrible experience. That's not usually how it works. Wow, Lars. No, and I'm not, of course, Lars Ulrich is actually a really progressive guy, really cool guy, and, and what have you, but certainly a drummer from Metallica. That's a badass and mofo. And what's so funny, by the way, about the way they wrote this screenplay was. They, they, the way they described it is they reversed engineered it to give themselves careers, you know, like the, the whole ways they're thinking is like, what can we do to make us shine? What scenes do we want to have? And they basically they just played the roles back and forth. So so sometimes Ben is playing Will, sometimes Matt is playing Will, sometimes one of them is playing Sean. They're just and they're kind of improvising and then writing and then improvising and then reading all the scripts and right. And it's, it sounds like that they wrote. You know, which isn't unusual, by the way, but they probably wrote more than a thousand pages, you know, and you throw stuff out and you try other things, you throw stuff out. And while this is going on, this writing process, Matt Damon has an audition with Gus Van Sant for To Die For. And his audition was really good, didn't get cast. 
the Nicole Kidman one, right? Okay. But in the audition, Matt's, you know, because you have, I mean, Karen, you've been through this as a casting director, or John, you've been through this as an actor. Sure. There's the required two minutes of small talk before you do your audition. Right. And Matt's, Gus Van Sant remembered that in Matt's two minutes of small talk, he said, oh, I'm working on this screenplay with my friend Ben. So the, the, this is long before anything happened. He, Gus knew this was on Gus Van Sant's radar. Right. And then, amazingly enough, a bidding war starts for this script. So these are two, you know, up-and-coming actors, and suddenly their script is a hot property, and finally it is bought by Rob Reiner at Castle Rock for $800,000. Wow. And what's funny is, is the, the day that that story came out in the trades is the day that Ben Affleck went to audition for Mallrats. <laughs> I also wrote a fun thing that apparently they used the trade saying what they were being paid for that to rent a, a place for them for like $3,000 a month, like an apartment for them. Wow. Because that's what they, because they had no credit. They had to use like the trade and say, see, we've, we've been, we've been offered this much money to <laughs> get hilarious. the apartment. Uh, only white guys get away with that shit. <laughs> no way. There's no way. There's no um, way I could have showed up. I, look, I sold this. <laughs> um, and then Ke Kevin Smith apparently takes home the script. And while he sits down to read it, as you do on the toilet, Ew. and never left the toilet. That's how good the script was. He spent oh, wow. the whole time there, was weeping. And I just can't imagine your Kevin Smith, who's had this, you know, big kind of cult success with Clerks and is suddenly thrown into the Hollywood world. And then these other two guys who you know, who you've kind of auditioned and friends with, they make this huge sale of this much more serious movie than Kevin Smith has been doing, you know, but he's blown away by the script. And then uh, Matt and Ben get a whole bunch of notes from Castle Rock. And man, I would love to see what this original script was like. Because my understanding is there was action sequences and spy stuff. And he's being hunted yeah, by there's the a, NSA. There was, yeah, there was a whole subplot about like spies. Because they were really man. feeding into that mathematical, you know. And there's a, there's an homage still in it with the, the NSA scene when he, when he, when he grills the guy about the NSA and there's th that's like the only piece that's left in the script apparently of of that subplot that they were told by many people to get rid of and luckily um, they did because it's a great film the way it is uh, well and, and part of it is that it goes back I think to this idea of we want to showcase everything we can do so of course we want to do some action stuff and Rob Reiner goes to them and says guys you gotta you gotta take all that out he says this is a story about a kid and a girl and therapy and that is what this movie is about. Wow. And they resisted for a long time. Oh, I'm sure. So, and then one of the other people, because a whole bunch of people saw this script, the person who told them that the movie has to end with Will making the decision to go to California, spoiler alert, <laughs> is, uh, are you supposed to do spoiler alerts before you say the thing, huh? <laughs> uh, I guess I messed that one up. Um, <laughs> is, of all people, Terrence Malick. Wow. I mean, it's just so bizarre to me that your script is being read by Terrence Malick and that he's giving you story notes. That's just crazy. Yeah. And then here's one of the weird things, and I don't think we'll ever know the truth of this, but Rob Reiner definitely gave the script to William Goldman and William Goldman definitely read it. And then in his book, which lie did I tell? He says that he rewrote the whole thing from scratch. And then oh. later, and then later on, he says, "No, no, no, that's totally not true. That was a joke. I did not. I re I did read the script. I did give some notes, but I didn't write it at all." 
the thing I read said that he definitely pulled that back and said, no, that was totally not true. But, um, but he did give the same note that, that to pull out the NSA stuff and to like make it simpler, you know? And just because you've sold the script for $800,000 doesn't actually necessarily mean that the studio is going to hire you to act in it. Yeah. And want to know who the studio wanted to cast? Robert Redford. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, he might have been up for the Sean part. They thought about just about everybody for the Sean part. Uh, No, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. That makes so much sense. Leo and Brad. Leo and Brad. And then, as often happens... It, the movie has all this buzz, all this excitement, and then mm, Castle Rock, it sounds like, starts to cool on the project. Mm. And it's starting to look like it's not gonna, they're not going to make it. And <laughs> Matt and Ben are doing rewrites, and they feel like there's not a lot of attention being paid to the rewrites. And they start to go, man, are they even reading these scripts? And those, <laughs> in one of the rewrites, they add in a fairly graphic oral sex scene. Literally to see if anybody's still reading the script. Do you know who the oral sex scene was between? No. Oh. It's between their two characters. It's between <laughs> Chucky. What? I didn't yeah. know that. That means yeah. you're gonna try to see if someone's reading your script. I think put that a, makes put a gay sense. put a gay oral sex scene in the middle exactly. of it. And see if that's what they were doing. Attention. And no one, no one noticed it. And they go, look, we got to get out of Castle Rock. Um, no offense to Castle Rock, but I, we don't think our movie's going to be there. And so they go, well, what has to happen then is somebody has to basically buy out Castle Rock, pay them the $800,000 to take over this script. Um, and they, so they go from a bidding war to total orphans. Nobody wants this script at all. And finally, Kevin Smith, who does love the script, says, listen, let me get it to Harvey. And so the script goes to Harvey Weinstein and, you know, this is a truly horrible, awful person who also has incredibly good taste in films. And his only comment was, you got to get rid of that scene. Yeah. Yeah. So Harvey saw the oral sex. He wrote it. (laughs) He read it, rather. Exactly. (laughs) That's that's sad. Uh, Yeah. On so many levels. Yeah, exactly. And this, by the way, is also why Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier are co-executive producers on the project, because they're the ones who made the Harvey Weinstein thing happen. Wow, makes sense. The other thing that shifted is that Matt and Ben have gone from being these working actors who were seen in some stuff to Ben is in the lead in Chasing Amy and Matt is now the lead in The Rainmaker with Francis Ford Coppola. Right. So suddenly these people are hot actors with a script that is once again hot and harvey says it's great but i've already decided who's going to play sean and that is gene hackman oh interesting choice Mm -hmm. um now matt and ben say that they wanted gus van sant to direct this movie from the beginning Mm. there's sometimes things people say that i go i don't know if i buy that that's really true but that is, that is definitely what they say. And Harvey says, no, absolutely not. No do, way. Do you know, do you know by oh. the way, who they, when they were writing the Sean part, the, the voices they were hearing in their heads and the voices that they would do no, imitations of are Morgan Freeman and Robert De Niro. <laughs> so they both would they would go back and forth doing <laughs> doing the voice of him in those various names because those were the people that that they wanted. I would love to see Morgan hear Morgan Freeman's Boston accent. That would just be <laughs> That would be pretty cool. <laughs> Although, you know what? I think Morgan would just do Morgan. I yeah, don't probably. Think... Morgan Freeman, it's not your fault. 
<laughs> I just that would be incredible. I don't know. Morgan Freeman from Southie doesn't really uh, ring true yeah. to me. <laughs> Although it would be interesting, right? Considering how racist that area is, yeah. it would have had a whole new level maybe to explore with a character like Morgan Freeman. Well, and this is the smart thing. One of the smart things that Matt and Ben did was they purposely wrote the character of Sean to bag a good actor. They're <laughs> like, you know, you have a supporting part. You give him a great yeah. monologue. And what's so interesting is there's not one of these names that, and there are more of them for this part that I don't go, well, that would have been really interesting. The next one was also going to direct the film. And that is Mel Gibson. Wow. Yeah. And at the time, you know, what, Braveheart's only, Braveheart's like two or three years removed. So they met with him right after Braveheart came out and, and Harvey wanted them to lie that they had seen it because they hadn't seen it yet. So they started their interview with him with like, we loved Braveheart. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't heard that either. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, And Mel's making ransom at the time. And Harvey's just like, we're going to wait whenever Mel is ready to make this movie. We'll make this movie. And Matt and Ben are going, we're getting older, (laughs) you know, like there's only so long that we can actually play these parts. And so they go to Mel and they basically say, listen, we, we really need to, we want you to do it, but we need to know now if you're really going to do this thing. And it sounds like Mel Gibson was super cool. And he said, you know what? I totally get it. You'll have an answer by the afternoon. And that afternoon he said, okay, I'm not going to do it. Take it back. No hard feelings. I wish you luck. And that was it. And so we don't have a director again. So Harvey brings in Michael Mann. Wow. Yeah, that would have been a very, very, very different film. <laughs> I have a feeling that the espionage and all of that would have come back into the script. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. And Michael Mann goes, I totally want to make this movie. I don't think Matt Damon is a star. I don't think he can carry a film. And so they do a screen test with Matt and Ben for Michael Mann. And Michael Mann went, see, they these guys are not stars. And he moved on. Yeah, I, I was, I was impressed. Just, I was like, really? Okay, that just. Well, Karen, you're our expert here. Have you seen screen tests where you knew the actor was amazing and they didn't shine? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are times where that happens. Um, and then, if you're lucky, you work. You're working with a studio or, or a network that lets you try again to get them to shine. You know, because we all know, I mean, you guys have done enough work yourselves acting and whatever that you also know. And, and we all know from our, our personal experience with our good friend, Elena, like there's certain people that are just amazing on camera. Yeah. Like there are people that like I um, Elena is one of those people who I can watch her in the room and she's great. But if I watch her on camera, she is phenomenal. Yeah. And then there's people like there was um way back before I did casting. I worked on a um, on a film when I was doing accounting. Um, called Confidence. Love that. That was an Ed Burns film. And it was a thing where he was a person that I I liked, but I, you know, I was not the biggest fan, but I I thought he was good. He just never really impressed me the way that other actors had. And I met him in person and he came into my office and started talking to me. And I was like, I just couldn't, my jaw was on the floor and I was just in love with him in person. Charisma, like just charisma oozing out of every pore of him. And I just couldn't take my eyes off of him. And I like, honestly, when, when he left the room, people were like, Karen, you need to calm yourself down now because I was just so taken aback by him, but on screen, he's good, but like, he never wows me the way that he did in person. And it's just interesting how that can happen with certain actors. So needless to say, 
we don't have a director again. And finally, we do go back to Gus Van Sant. He finally reads this screenplay that he'd heard about years before, absolutely loves it. And Matt and Ben give him a lot of credit. And they say that he doesn't, Gus Van Sant doesn't get nearly enough credit for this film. And this one, I do believe, I, not only do I believe that they said that and meant it, but I think it's really true. I think this is a very deftly directed film. Yeah. Well, and it's also if you're a fan of his, which I know you are, Steve, and I assume you are, John, is that yeah. you can you can see his, you know, his sort of hallmark stuff. His touches. You know, even, even on this, his touches, like his, his, those kind of things where he'll get really close on people. And, and, and that is something that I think he's kind of known for, but maybe more subtly, maybe like, because it's not something that you think of right away. But when you see it, it, it really helps you get drawn into the film it really makes you feel like you're you know actually a fly on the wall that you're in the room watching this moment happen and i think that's something that he's really good at and, and people may not remember this but for those of us who were around around that time he had done my own private idaho and to die for which were these like really interesting independent films that explore the ugly underbelly of relationships and of um, nefarious people and of controversial situations and murders so when there when it was announced that he was going to be directing Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, Affleck in uh, in Good Hunting, there was this revolution. There was this I don't want to say revolution, or there was this reaction. I'm sorry to say reaction. There was a reaction from the indie artists who said that he was selling out. He was doing a mainstream pop culture film, you know. And of course, indie people are so provincial about their little things. That God forbid someone want to break out, like Liz Fair want to break out and do a pop song. Yeah. God forbid there's always this reaction from the indie crowd. And so when this was announced, a lot of people were very disillusioned with Gus Van Sant and reacted strongly to it, um, thinking he was selling out for the corporate or for the mainstream movie success. And they had lost and one of their own to the other side, you know. And what's sad about that is that he brought what makes him so great and what makes the indie feeling so great mm -hmm. to a film that really in a lot of ways is an indie film. Like I know, but but it really is an indie As film. It's like, and because of that, I think the alchemy of, of Gus Van Sant coming in and doing that with them, it, it brought the same way that they, you know, the, the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck was bringing sort of clout to Van Sant, mm -hmm. his indie clout was being brought to them. And so it was just, I don't know. It just, I think it worked so well mm -hmm. that it just was this perfect storm of the right pieces of the puzzle hitting at the right, you know, in the right way to make just a, an even better version than either piece by themselves would have been. You know? Right. It was a great collaborative effort. He brought them closer to the indie side of things and they brought him a little bit out of the indie into a little bit of the mainstream side of things. And it worked. They walked that line so well and I recently watched Finding Forrester, uh, which is also mm -hmm. a Gus Van Sant film. And there's a lot of elements in yeah. the film from Goodwill Hunting. And so it's great. I love both of those films. I would love uh, to so rewatch that. I loved that movie when I saw it. So good. And so it was, check it, it, was, out. it was fun to kind of explore Goodwill Hunting again for this episode after having seen Finding Forrester, because there's so many connective tissues to that approach, plus Damon showing up at the end in a cameo. That's right. Yeah. So. We finally got a director. We got a script. Bat and Ben are going to act in this movie. We still got to cast this part of Sean. And we've already mentioned a bunch of the people they went after. They also went after Ed Harris. They went after, you know, a whole bunch of people. 
I, all of these people would have been good. I mean, like, fair point. Fair point. You know, they're all great actors, and it's a it is a perfect support. It is literally written to be a supporting actor Oscar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that is where, where it sits. And Robin Williams had wanted to work with Gus Van Sant, and so he hears about the project, and he had he has three connections to Matt Damon, all of which he checked. So the first one is that he had just done Jack with Francis Ford Coppola and Matt is doing Rainmaker. So he calls up Francis and says, hey, what about this guy, Matt Damon? And Francis says he's great. But that's not his only connection because Robin Williams's niece was a PA on Rainmaker. Oh, wow. So he calls up his niece and says, tell me about this guy, Matt Damon. And they say, he's great. And then Robin's manager reads the script and he says, Robin, you have to do this. Now, we don't know whether or not it's his niece, Francis Ford Coppola, or his manager, which was most influential in him making the decision. But needless to say, he decides to do the part. Here is one more thing that I just find to be so bizarre. And I I almost wish I had more detail on it, which is where the name Will Hunting and the title Good Will Hunting came from. Okay. Which is that they had a buddy named Derek Riggerman, who they had like acted with in high school. And Derek Riggerman went off to write a novel and his first novel's title is Good Will Hunting. (laughs) And Matt and Ben spent years writing this script and could not come up with a name for the character or a title. And they finally called up their friend Derek and said, listen, man, we really like the title of your book and that main character name. Can we steal him? And he's like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) I wonder what they were calling him beforehand. Yeah, like Will. Hill Bunting. I don't know. Yeah, but for, <laughs> but st- I hope they took care of him after. I hope so too. I mean, that's like, come on. And it is a great, I mean, it is a great title. I love, I love titles that have that kind of, you know. So I want to throw one more thing in here, which I think is crazy as well. Mindy Kaling and Brenda Withers wrote a play based off this situation called Matt and Ben. And it's two best friends, background actors in Field of Dreams. Two women are usually cast as Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in this play, and they write a screenplay. So it's all about how they write the screenplay for Goodwill Hunting because, again, around this time, as I was reading stuff about the movies and reading gossip in the trades or whatever back in the, uh, the, back in the 90s there, they were there was a lot of people speculating that Ben and Matt never wrote the script, that it was written by other people, and that they because they were popular, they put their name on it, and there's another writer who's never gonna get credit for having written the script. So it was a whole thing. So in the play, which is a obviously a, a satire, they're writing, they're trying to rewrite Catcher in the Rye. And they're when when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of the script for Goodwill Hunting falls from the heavens from God for them. <laughs> And they use that to um, eventually make the movie and do all these kinds of things. So it was a play on the kind of snarky attitude of some of those indie people claiming there's no way these two guys wrote that play, wrote the screenplay for it because uh, Damon was seen as the intellectual of the two, if people remember from back then. And Affleck was seen as the movie star, the lunkhead, the kind of jock, good looking dude, but not nowhere near as deep as Damon. Where, and the play makes fun of both of them throughout the whole play. So in a way, Mindy Kaling, who was not that well-known, in a way, this play announced her. And from that, we get hmm. Mindy Kaling, who is the oh. big star. Now, it, of course, at some point, she was probably going to be discovered. But this was the play. And I remember being in L.A. when this was being done it, off off uh, the main strip there. Um, 
And I remember it being a big sensation for people to go see it. I was a little snarky about it because I was like, why are they making fun of them? I love Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And so I never went to see it. But later I realized that I should have gone to see it because it's apparently a very funny satire in this whole situation. Although they make fun of him, they also redeemed them both by the end in the way they're portraying the character. So it's a fascinating that sounds fun, thing. and it's still being performed. It's still being performed around the country. So yeah, a little Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of. Uh, yeah, kind thing. of. Yes, that's a great <laughs> reference, Karen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's I didn't know any of that. That's totally really? fascinating. No, and yeah, I, I had never I would, heard about any of that. I love what? it. Wow, I would love to. I mean, I'm sure Matt and Ben. I am assuming they must have seen it. You know. Yeah. Like I wonder oh, what they no. thought of it. There's no way they haven't seen it. Yeah. I mean, they that's take it I as assume. a test from God, the script, and they struggle <laughs> with this moral conundrum. Should they take the script that they've been given or should they write or keep working on the script that they were working I on? I love it. The I want somebody to redo that now. In the yeah, 25th yeah. anniversary, I want them to like redo that now. So let's get in the film. Okay. I love this title sequence. And the first thing I notice is that Danny Elfman score. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, Steve, but I have owned that score for a very long time, and I have of been course. listening. I've listened to that score endlessly. Well, and and John's heard me say many times there are certain pieces of music that I use as editing to temp mm-hmm. to temp throw music in things like uh, Peter Gabriel's Passion, Passion, things like the Mission soundtrack, <laughs> things like um, Crimson Tide soundtrack. I would use all the time, um, and this was another one. Uh, the Danny Elfman score from it's just so great. And the combination of that music with this weird kaleidoscope imagery, as we kind of see these math equations and we see images that are going to be important in the film, is really, this is where Gus Van Sant's touch, I think, works so well, because there's something about it that sets you up emotionally for the movie. You know what I mean? So the way they did this is, first of all, they had to find a little kaleidoscope thing. And this, what they are shooting through, apparently, is a crystal shaped like a Christmas tree. Oh, that's what's giving this image. And the way they did it was all these math equations are blown up to like six feet tall. So they're these huge math equations that they're shooting through a crystal Christmas tree. And they also they let Matt do it a lot where he kind of just walked around and looked at stuff with this little crystal. And that's how they set up some of the shots. It's awesome. And then we go to just the world of Goodwill Hunting. We see Southie. We see this old woman sitting on a porch. We have a top-down shot of Chucky, which is Ben Affleck's character, getting out of the car and walking to the door in a fantastic tracksuit, by the way. Yes. I think it's so important that the first kind of scene of the movie that we see is Chucky walking up to pick up Will. Because it's so significant. It's the This is the bookends of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have these aerial shots of Boston and MIT, and then we go to uh, a big lecture hall, which, by the way, this is all shot at the University of Toronto, and there is Stellan Skarsgård teaching. Yeah. He's so great in this movie. I think this is where I discovered him. Yeah, it might be. What I love about his character is that he, he and I, a lot of this is Stellan, by the way, hmm. it's like he's the weirdest small rock star in the world you know what i mean like his his way is like i am so i am super cool i am beyond cool i am unbelievably famous in this very small group you know yeah yeah yeah. 
I can swagger around within this area. Big fish, little pond. <laughs> and I, I love everything. The, co- the costume, the scarf, the way he taught, you know, like the whole thing is so beautifully done. And this is the beginning of the semester at a very high level math class at MIT. I don't know if you knew this, but originally they wrote it with, he was supposed to be a physics prodigy instead of a math mm. prodigy. And I think they went to a professor, I think of Matt's when he was at Harvard and talked to him about it. And he basically said that it doesn't ring true because anything that is being done in physics is done sort of as a group think tank thing. It's not like a one person doing something on their own. And he suggested that they turn it into a math prodigy and then referred them. I think this, I think the physics professor had a brother who was a math professor and then he talked them through it and kind of got them onto the, what they ended up doing with, with the Will Hunting character being more of a math prodigy than a physics prodigy. And he says he's also put an advanced Fourier system on the main chalkboard. And this is a math problem that he's challenging his students to solve by the end of the semester. Now the person to do so would not only be in my good graces, but also go on to fame and fortune by having their accomplishment recorded and their name printed in the auspicious MIT Tech. Former winners include Nobel laureates, Fields Medal winners, renowned astrophysicists, and lowly MIT professors. <laughs> Which is a lovely, perfect, humble brag, I think. Oh, yeah. Although it's funny now that I'm thinking about it, because isn't he a Fields Medal? He is a Fields Medal. So he references himself twice. That's why it's such a good humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, Sean, do you want the Fields Medal? You can have it. <laughs> well, that's all. If you have any questions... I'm sure that Tom has the answers. I want to save our conversation about Tom. Yeah, Tom's a real Tom. guy. But, yeah. but for, for later, but, oh, Tom. Yeah. Um, and then we cut to Matt Damon, Will Hunting, with a mop. And he's mopping the hall, and there's a bunch of students who are looking at this very difficult math problem. And then they move away, and he looks at the math problem. By the way, they move away because he slops a whole bunch of water, like, real close to the right. He kind of is antagonizing them from the second he starts there. (laughs) Wait, you're saying that Will is not respectful of (laughs) some of these MIT kids? Um, And then we cut to (laughs) the L Street Tavern, which is a lot. These are all real locations in Southie. And I'm not going to quote this whole conversation between Chucky and this woman, but it is it is a funny and B feels completely real to me. Not having grown up in Southie, this feels real real to me. Why didn't you give me none of that nasty little hoochie woochie usually throw at me? Oh fuck you and your Irish curse, Chucky. Like at least my energy spreading my legs for that tootsie roll dick. And we see that the other people that are there, that Matt Damon is there, and there is also Casey Affleck and Cole Hauser. Mm-hmm. So Casey is into Die For with Gus Van Sant. Right. So he might have gotten the part that Matt auditioned for. Oh, yeah. Apparently, he was not sure that he wanted to be an actor at this point. What he does with this character is crazy. (laughs) Apparently, he he ad-libbed a lot of his lines, and apparently it has been said by both Gus Van Sant and the boys who wrote it that he... Did so much better than anything they ever wrote for him just by ad-libbing his own stuff and just saying what he wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. Showed you the talent in that Affleck family for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's amazing to think how many Oscar winners are in this damn cast in, in this, yeah. in this whole, you know, everybody are surrounding the production of this thing. It's just insane. And how many people, I mean, Stellan Skarsgård is about to be an Andor. Uh, Cole Hauser has essentially made a second comeback with Yellowstone. 
Um, and Casey Affleck won that Oscar for Manchester by the Sea. And of course, there were those allegations. So Casey hasn't quite popped up uh, since then in a, in a way. But like so many people involved in this are still working today or around today. Uh, and it's so interesting uh, considering this is 1997, you know. So, Well, and I love what they're doing here of setting up the contrast between the Southie world and Will Hunting's mm-hmm. world and the MIT world. And and how Will is sort of, you know, visiting that MIT world. And then we go from this, you know, raucous uh, scene with, you know, Chucky and this girl and all these jokes in this bar to that classic mirror shot of Matt working on the math problem and looking at himself in the mirror, which I always go like, do do mathematicians do this? Is this like actually a thing? I'm like, don't they just write on paper? But it looks great. And then we see him on the tee we see him back at mit polishing the floor and then he is all alone in that hallway working on the problem one interesting thing by the way is that this was a pickup because the way the script worked is it really was jerry lambeau but stellan skarsgård character's perspective is that we don't spend time with we never see matt actually solve the problem because they wanted it to feel more like a mystery that, you know, Stellan just comes out and sees the problem solved, mm-hmm. you know, rather than seeing Matt do it. And I think this is a much better choice. Yeah. Uh, we cut to a batting cage and, you know, the chemistry between Matt and Ben, I mean, it's great. Stop rushing me back. Stop crowding the plate. The, the banter in that scene is just so brother, you know, like that, that awesome brother stuff of like, oh, I'm just going to give you shit until you give me shit back. It's just, it's so... <laughs> It's so perfect. You're going to get charged. You know that. You think I'm afraid of you, you big fuck? You're crowding the fucking play. Now, John, yeah. I don't know how much time you've spent in batting cages. Uh, Does anyone ever pitch in a batting cage? No. I, that was weird when I remember <laughs> seeing that in the movie because I grew up in Virginia, in Southern Virginia. We had – or Northern Virginia, but we had batting cages in Northern Virginia, and I've never uh, never had someone pitch to me in a batting cage. And I'd go all the time when I was younger because it was just fun to kind of – Spend an hour shooting the shit with your buds, uh, you know, and it was a quarter at a, t- at a time. So it was yeah. just way cheaper back then. Um, and then I've even gone to the one in Burbank every once in a while yeah, just to spend too. an hour by myself with my thoughts swinging because I'm terrible at this, you know. And so I just like to go and have fun. And so I never played softball as much as, uh, you know, Vicky Kelleher, a former guest, has done. It's never really been the thing or Josh Moon. Um, so I just kind of enjoyed it, but I never had anyone <laughs> pitch because I thought that was illegal. So, um, and I don't know if Ben Affleck would be would be getting to that level of speed, right? So it just seemed odd. It's to- it, it, it's one of those things where if, if you stop to think about, it, it makes no sense at all. I mean, batting cages are scary. There's yeah. Yeah. eight guys hitting balls. You don't want to stand out in the middle of it. There's it's these true. machines shooting balls at people, but scene wise, it's great. It's a fantastic scene. This is probably never true and never happened. But what they do is, in essence, make it feel like a small town. Yeah. Make, South, make Southie, which is, a, which is connected to Boston, which is a massive town, yeah. they make it feel like this small town atmosphere. So re, kind of subconsciously reinforcing this idea of the underdog versus the intelligentsia of MIT. So just very smart, subconscious things that they're doing in the construction of the film to help you cheer for this guy. He feels like one, a majority of the people watching the movie probably feel like they know a guy like this. Some of their friends are like this. So you get that connective tissue almost immediately with a character like this. 
Well, and it's also you, fun to see watch the you know that that there's actual intellectual combat going on between them, but there's also right a, a physical thing that he's actually being crowded from like like the, the crowding the plate and then throwing the pitch at him like that. There's yeah. there's the the both the cerebral and the actual physical confrontation happening simultaneously which i think helps elevate both of them you know yeah it's funny we're spending a long time on the scene but but now that you said that it, it also occurs to me that what, one of the interesting things about this film is you know will hunting is a genius it's not just a genius but a super duper genius yeah and yet he fits in perfectly with these guys in south right you know there's no barrier there's no barrier between them but but John, as you mentioned, we're setting up this contrast between the Southie world and the MIT world. And man, nothing does that better than the cut from the two guys kind of fake fighting in the batting cage to the guys in red jacket acapella group at <laughs> MIT. I'd hold you forever here. Like, that is it's, it's, that is a long way to go. Um <laughs> And some students, including a young woman student, run up to Professor Lambeau. I'm in your applied theories class. We're all up at the math and science building. And immediately, Lambeau starts flirting with her. It's Saturday. <laughs> Unless you want to have a drink with me tonight. All of the coming on to women, that's all Stellan Skarsgård's idea. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> and it, it just, it makes him so perfectly slimy. Yeah. And arrogant, and, but in a great, like a great way. People forget, like Steve said, like he discovered Stellan Skarsgård through Goodwill, but he had done Insomnia, which had kind of come over here as kind of an international hit, uh, and that, and Breaking the Waves. And if both of those are a year, I think, before Goodwill Hunting. So, like, the independent international film movement knew about Stellan, and these characters he plays are can be quite unsavory or can challenge you because. In Insomnia, obviously, the Al Pacino remake there that Nolan did, he's a detective who is, um, uh, you know, can't, can't get sleep and whatever. He almost tries to seduce the young girl who's a friend of his daughter. So it's like it's real creepy as shit. And then, in, of course, in Breaking Waves, he becomes paralyzed and he wants his wife, who is Emily Watson, to go and have sex with men and come back and tell him about it so that she's not missing out on that experience because he's paralyzed. So interesting characters. And so for him to come in and be like, yeah. If this guy's going to be antagonist, I want him to be that creepy teacher antagonist who violates these lo- these rules and hits on these young girls and takes advantage of his power. And ironically, in a Harvey Weinstein film, let's put that on the table as well. So, True. so interesting to see how this carries levels still now or carries weight now, his performance and his genius as an actor to try to make sure that people really didn't like this guy for a number of reasons. I think we'd be hard pressed to find any one of us who didn't have at least one professor like that in college. Ooh. Do you know what I mean? Well, like uh, every, you know, like whether, whether they're hitting on you or whether they're hitting on somebody you knew, mm. there was always, because, you know, power breeds that kind of stuff. And so like in yeah. positions of power, especially with young, influential cute minds whether they're male or female you know it's gonna it's gonna be a thing i i think what's it's amazing about what stellan skarsgård does is he manages to make give you all these reasons to judge this character and yet i never i never fully reject his character do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i i see all of the flaws right um the, the other thing we talked about lots of times of you know if i write a script i want someone to be able to deliver on what i wrote yeah but that isn't really the goal the real goal is someone to come in and plus it. Oh like, yeah. 
and that's what Stellan is doing in this is that he's 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 delivering everything required and he's giving so much more, you know. Yeah, yeah and that's what uh, that's what we want in casting too is that you want someone not to just deliver the scene. You want someone to bring something new that you never thought of. Like that is that is always the goal. <laughs> and if you're lucky you get it once in a blue moon. <laughs> we just couldn't wait until Monday to find out. Find out what? Who proved the theorem? And we cut to that hallway and of course we're we know what we're gonna see they're looking at the proof and they he, they go this is correct who did this and i love how the students all like wasn't me no way of course we cut to will and his friends in the stands watching little league and drinking some beers <laughs> you know you said before about making this feel like a small town i think yeah. this scene does the same thing yep. it's, it's, it's totally i mean I've never gone to drink some beers and watch a little league. You're missing out. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. I watched our kid play little league and it was not that thrilling. I don't <laughs> know. I think, I think drinks would have helped. <laughs> that's fair. That's a fair point. And the other thing that happens is they spot a guy uh, in the stands that Will says used to beat him up in kindergarten. No, I've had that experience. So <laughs> that certainly was a moment I uh, connected to when I was watching the movie. <laughs> have you had the revenge that Will's about to have? Uh, yes, I did in high school, but not oh, against wow. his, not against the older guy who used to beat me up too. I never found him again. Um, maybe There's still a chance. Maybe on Facebook once I <laughs> yeah. found it, but uh, I never did anything. But yeah, that's the what guy Facebook's for these me, days. <laughs> yeah, the guy who used to beat me up when I from like ten years old to fourteen years old when I was fifteen. I've told the story. I you know started lifting weights over the summer, and when I went back to school as a junior, he tried to pull the same bullshit on me, and I turned around and put him up against the wall by his neck, and I said those days are over, and that was that. And so that was one of the greatest moments of my life. So seeing that character talk about it and like you know you realize like he's got his boys with him and later we're going to see what happens if there is a desire you know to work out some shit clearly so when when i finally make the biopic of the outlaw <laughs> that scene is a critical turning point it, in the film i'm not gonna lie to you it is a critical turning point for better or worse i mean, I mean it's it's amazing that you they give us just enough of will's background and they allude to so much more, but like I've spent the last, you know, couple of days thinking about this stuff and just going like you, you almost don't want to see more because it would be, it would be a totally different film and it would just, it would turn it too far to the sad stuff. Because if you really start to think about what, what Will's life was like when you really delve deep into it, it's, it's pretty horrible. And, and, to see any more of that stuff would color that character that we love so much. Who's actually not as bad off as you kind of think he should be from the life that he's led. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he's got this, yeah. I don't know. There, there's, there's a light inside of him that's there, even though it's yeah. buried a lot, but it, it, you it, see it, you know? I mean, there is a huge mix of light and darkness and we're just about to see the darkness, but, but before we get there, we have this scene in the car with Casey Affleck and Ben Affleck arguing about the burger. Okay, give me the burger. <laughs> so uh, if you're wondering where that performance comes from, apparently they had a joke, Ben and Casey and Matt, about being in the whammy business. And what they meant by the whammy business was when you 
in acting a part, you go so nuts that it's either going to succeed like crazy or you'll just, or it'll be a disaster. Retainer! Yeah. And so oh Casey God. says, Casey, by the way, one of, one of the greatest moments of all time. That's and, a whammy performance. And, and, that is a and, performance. And Kara could tell you how often one of us say, well, and our son who now has a retainer he has to wear at night, <laughs> it's so often that I say to him, retainer. <laughs> so Casey said, listen, in this for this part, I'm going deep into the whammy business. <laughs> and, and what was so funny is watching it, I've always had this thought of like, it kind of reminds me of what Benicio Del Toro does in Usual Suspects, which is totally. just completely bizarre. Well, guess what? That's what Casey Affleck was thinking of, was Benicio Del Toro from Usual Suspects. Oh, that <laughs> makes me so happy. <laughs> I said I could change when I get the snow call. I said that before when we pulled up. Why don't you just give me my sandwich and stop being a prick? And, and this whole scene of Ben Affleck talking about putting the burger away on layaway, it's all hilarious. Keep it right up here for you. We'll put you on a program. Every day you come in with your six cents, and at the end of the week, you get your sandwich. Are you going to be an asshole? What am I, fucking <laughs> sandwich welfare? I think you should establish a good line of credit. You like how you bought your couch. Payment plans. And, and it is really, you can see the brothers. Like, you can really see the brothers. And, like, that moment only comes from the, the, the knowledge of the, the rhythm of another person like that. Yes. Like, they play so well off each other in that scene. The, the other thing that I think is re interesting and really smart for an actor is that Cole Hauser sees how big Casey Affleck is being. And he says, well, I can't compete with that. And so he decides to be quiet and small. He gives away a bunch of his lines and says, no, no, I'm going to my character is going to be defined by its silence and stillness. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a really sophisticated actor choice for a young actor. Yeah. yeah and, and he's, you know, he's kind of scary in the movie. He's kind of like that scarier edge. Oh, yeah. You know, because Casey's a, you know, like a skinny kid and whatever, up and coming, smart ass. And Affleck and certainly Damon with his intellect is kind of scary in a different way. But Affleck is the guy that kind of bridges the gap here. But Cole Hauser, because he's quiet, because he doesn't say too much, you sense that he might be the oldest of the crew and that mm. he at any moment could like absolutely demolish somebody without breaking a sweat, you know. Well, in the hands of a lesser right. actor, you'd you'd forget about him. Yeah, right. Exactly. But because He's because he handled it so deftly, and like Steve said, with the the pulling everything back, yeah, that's almost scarier. You know what I mean? Like there's that that piece, and so you remember that you always remember that there's four of them, even though he's very much on the outside. You know. Well, and part of what happened was Gus Van Sant purposely cast people that they knew to be these friends because he wanted it to be convincing friendships and man this group of friends uh, not for a moment do i not think these guys are friends yeah it's it's so believable it that 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 paid off in in in, in spades for him on that one <laughs> um and then they passed that guy that used to beat up will in kindergarten and it happened so fast that like, oh, we're going to go fight that guy. We're going to go beat him up. And I love Casey goes like, we just seen the guy 15 minutes ago at the park. If he was going to fight him, we should fight him then. We're eating snacks now. <laughs> I think that it's snacks too. I love that he used the term snacks because that is not what you expect someone from Southie to say. Snacks. <laughs> and Chucky basically says, shut up. You're going. You're in the crew. This is the price you pay for being in the crew. Come on. It's me. It's me, Will. Remember, we went to kindergarten together. And then there's a full sucker punch. I mean, yeah. 
it, yeah. it's just out of nowhere. And the, but the choice it goes into slow mo, and the choice to use Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street <laughs> as the song, which is this bright song. Yeah, uh, it, it's amazing. Yeah, and and the people of a certain age, of which we all are, that song was like. That was a big song in our youth. <laughs> and what happens is you, it starts with a song and then it gets more reverby and more distorted. And man, you know, when you see Chucky show up into this fight and then you see Casey and uh, Cole Hauser show up into this fight, you could see the crew. Like, just as you said, John, like you could yeah. really see these people that this is not <laughs> this is not their first rodeo. And then slowly you watch Will go nuts. The music's now very, very distorted. And he's just on top of this guy, just beating the crap out of him. Well, what's, yeah, I think the slow motion stuff was genius by um, Gus Van Sant. It, cause it allows you to not turn this scene into a, cool revenge violence scene you're actually uh, you know uh, yeah. enacting revenge through violence you're seeing the violence in his anger and you're seeing yeah. the untapped just rage within him because of the things that happened to him in the past which we will find out later in the film and that this also gives us the what we're going to see with him and Skyler when he has those emotional outbursts with Skyler and how ruthless he can be because He's been conditioned this. So him taking out this revenge uh, in this moment, if it had, it could have been shot in so many ways it made it look cool and satisfying, but it's shot in the way that you really kind of are uncomfortable with some of the brutality that Definitely. Uh, Matt Damon is meeting out. The focused rage of Will on that one guy. And you see, basically you see him turn almost inhuman. Like he, he really does stop being a human being for a minute. And he just becomes this machine that is just intent on hurting this person and so it really there's a real arc in that scene that just kind of informs a lot about his character and i think the baker street choice is a smart choice because that song is about living a plastic life about confronting the emptiness of your life about going out and drinking all the time so you don't have to confront it and so and you don't have to move on yet you know you need to you just can't and so it's kind of got meaning here as well with the lyrics. If you listen to the lyrics about Damon's character, about Will, Will also going out with his buddies, going out and drinking, getting involved in these things, getting into these fights. We find out in a, in a minute that he's got this record and has done this multiple times. And he is because he does not want to actually embrace his intellect and use it for some because he's afraid of change. So he's going to stay repeating the same patterns. And if he doesn't break out of it, he's going to end up being one of these sad motherfuckers on the side of the road who just drinks his life away, you know? So there's, it's just a genius to use Baker street. Actually. I agree with all of that. And I I think it's such a remarkable scene because what you get is that there's this guy you're kind of rooting for Mm. up up to this point in the movie. And you're like, Oh, he's doing the math problem. No, and then you see this and you go, Oh, this is, it's really troubling and upsetting. And, and, and you're like, Oh, this is my main character. And particularly there's the, they start yelling that the cops are coming. You see the cops showing up. Yeah, and everyone, yeah, everyone except Will responds yeah. the way you're supposed to respond when the cops show up right. and Will doesn't stop. And then the cops drag him off and then he attacks the cops. Yep. And then we cut from this shot of Will's bloody face just on the ground with the police on top of him yeah. to 
that crowded classroom at MIT. Well, by no stretch of my imagination do I believe you've all come here to hear me lecture, or rather to ascertain the identity of the mystery math magician. <laughs> I, I love the way he speaks. He has this wonderful formal sort of way of speaking. So without further ado, come forward to Silent Rogue and receive thy prize. It's such a nerdy way of speaking, you know? <laughs> I love that he says math magician because that's just one of my, <laughs> my one of my favorite phrases from when you have a kid in school is they use that term a lot, math magician. And I'm like, oh, I like that it's carried over to MIT and <laughs> professorial stuff. <laughs> well, and I think back to, so we know, we're going to find out later that Jerry's, Jerry Lambeau's roommate in college was Sean, was Robin Williams's character. Yeah. And that, Jerry was a scared, nerdy, you know, totally immature guy at the time. And just from this little speech about, you know, come, come silent brother and receive thy prize. I'm like, young Jerry Lambeau totally played Dungeons and Dragons. I was just going to say, <laughs> played D&D, right? Like, had to play. Totally. He's a nerdy little math whiz who then became this big rock, you know, essentially math rock star. And yeah. he's living off it, you know. Yeah. But needless to say. Nobody comes forward. Seems there will be no unmasking here today. However, um, my colleagues and I have conferred, and there is a problem on the board right now that took us more than two years to prove. So let this be said. The gauntlet has been thrown down, but the faculty have answered and answered with vigor. It's a very JFK kind of sounding thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just going to continue to do these contrasting things. We went from the fight to the classroom, and now we go from the classroom to the police station. And Will is walking out, and there is Chucky waiting for him with a cup of coffee. And I love the lack of conversation because he just asks, when's the arraignment? He goes, next week. And they don't talk about it at all. Then we cut to back to MIT. Will is at that board where this new problem is there. And Tom and Jerry uh, Lambeau come out. I just realized they... it's Tom and Jerry. What is Tom and Jerry? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I hadn't thought about that either. I hadn't thought about it until I just heard you say that. Tom and Jerry. Um, and they see this not well-dressed janitor at the board of their fancy math problem. Sorry. What do you do? Sorry. That's people's work. You can't graffiti here. Don't you walk away from me. Hey, fuck you. Then he's gone. But what's interesting is, is that Jerry has been following Will. He didn't look at the board. Tom has stopped at the board. And he walks back, walks up slowly. Oh, my God. And Tom says, Looks right. So Tom is John Mighton, I think is his name, uh, and he is actually a math teacher. Yep. I think his casting is so great. I feel so much for Tom, and in later scenes too. How can you not? <laughs> I mean, yeah. he seems like a really sweet guy who's just really tr- trying. How many, of, you know? how many of us have felt like Tom? Raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, you know what you know what it is like. There's some level of this movie that's you know Amadeus and Salieri because with mm-hmm. with yeah. Lambeau being Salieri. Well, Tom is the Salieri to Salieri. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. He's like I can't even. I don't even can't even hang with Mozart. I'm just very grateful that I can hang around Salieri at court. You know. One one of the things that I think is funny about this is that, and I, I know nothing about higher math, so but I love that the first equation 
looks like math to me. Whereas the second equation, it actually looks like graffiti. So it's funny to me right. when Jerry calls him out and says, you can't graffiti here. I'm like, it, that's what that looks like to me is it looks like some kid just plotting lines and trying to make a connect the dot number, follow the number kind of like, I have no idea. Like you couldn't, I couldn't even begin to understand how that has anything to do with math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Same. Um, uh, and now we cut to back to, again, we cut back and forth. So now we're back with our guys and Will has told them he got fired from his job, mm. which is not true. But what we are doing is we are no longer in Southie. We are now in Harvard Square and we are walking up to go to a Harvard bar. A Harvard bar. Uh, and I should say, you you went to school in Boston, Karen. I did. Mm. I was at Boston University from 87 to 89 go bulldogs i think we were i don't know you lost you lost a lot of bu cred right there man <laughs> i did terriers. live right outside the stadium for a year yeah they're ter the terriers that's who they are the terriers the terriers that's what it is so we're in the bar uh uh chucky's going to go get a pitcher of beer and also he's gonna bust a move on the hotties at the end of the bar work some magic yeah hotties his dorky walk up <laughs> is so funny and there we get to meet uh, Minnie Driver, who plays Skyler. Yeah. Who was um, coming off of Circle of Friends. Yeah. Her own kind of um, announcement of uh, her talent. I was wondering what she had done right before that. That's yeah. right, Circle yeah. of Friends. Good film with Chris O'Donnell and yeah. uh, Saffron Burroughs. Great Irish, great little Irish film. I loved that. I loved that movie. So I'm just going to say right here, I yeah. think Minnie Driver is amazing. Yeah. I, got, I had a massive crush on her after this movie. They, sure. they didn't want her. They didn't think she was cute enough. Some, I forget who, but somebody didn't think she was cute enough, and they didn't want her to get the role. I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> She's and adorable. Of course, all kind of mad drama later on with because uh, she dated Damon during this whole Oh, process. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know that? Holy shit. Yeah, yeah they yeah. started dating during the process, and they broke up before the Oscars. But she still had to kind of go as part of the cast. So it was super awkward, apparently. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting, so, uh, John, we just did our Grease live show. Yes. In which Olivia Newton-John comes in to play an American part. They talk about her doing an American accent, and then they right. decide to keep it Australian. This yeah. is the same thing. She, Minnie Driver did an American accent for some of the auditions, and then finally they're like, no, you're way more charming with your British accent, which, <laughs> I mean, come on. And there, there are definitely, I've seen that a million times too, where like I've had someone come in and audition with an American accent and they're really good. And then they start talking to you in their real accent and you're like, oh my God, like there, there is something. And some people, it's vice versa. Again, it's, you never know how it's going to go, but, but yeah, there have been times where I'm like, can we please make this character British or Australian or whatever it is? Because this person is magnetic in a way that is inexplainable in their natural accent that they are not. Well, that way. You know. About Penelope Cruz and Diane Kruger. I don't enjoy them as much in their English roles as I do when I see them in their Spanish or German roles. I feel like they're much more realized, you know? Yeah. And there's a great line in Modern Family where Sofia Vergara says, Do you know how intelligent I am in Spanish in my head? Like, <laughs> I have to translate everything I say to English. I'm super smart when I'm yeah. talking my language. And yeah, some people are much more, I think, much more alive as actors in their natural language, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's funny because Stellan obviously not American himself. So literally uh, going to say the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he's one obviously who has figured it out. Although I wouldn't know how he speaks in his natural language because oh, I don't. Uh, yeah. 
I would recommend, recommend you watch the original Insomnia, my friend. It is so good. He's so good in it. Yeah. Um, I just mean I wouldn't know what he's saying. I mean, I would put <laughs> the subtitle, but I don't understand the language. Anyway, um, but I so I love huh? Ben Affleck's taking a character from Southie who's trying to sound a different, you know, that he's different. So do you ladies uh come here often? Do I come here? I come here a bit. I'm here uh, you know, from time to time. Yeah, he's trying to sound smarter than he is. And Chucky is smart. He's just from Southie and he hasn't had the advantages. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think Chucky is dumb. He's trying to pull off that he goes to Harvard. So I think I had a class with you. Oh, yeah? What class? History. And then up walks this guy. This, <laughs> this guy. Is, and this is Scott William Witt, uh, Winters. Uh, he's done a ton of work. He's acted yes. a ton. Yeah. But he will never not be this guy for me. <laughs> yes. What class did you did you say that was? History. history. Yeah. Just history. And it's just so perfectly smarmy. You know what I mean? Like it's just you know who he is. He's got the long hair, and you know what exactly what kind of jerk he is from the beginning. Yeah. It must have been a survey course then, huh? Yeah, it was. It was surveys. Right. You should check it out. It's a good course. It's a good, good class. And you could just feel the trap being laid for Chucky and how cruel what this guy is about to do is. And, and Chucky's still trying to pull it off. He's like, frankly, I found the class, you know, rather uh, elementary, elementary. Yeah. You know, I don't doubt that it was. Yeah. I, uh, I remember that class. It was, um, it was just between recess and lunch. Especially cause it's the play on elementary that he just used the word elementary, yep. you know? Yeah, that's actually, you know what? I don't think I ever got that joke, but you're totally right. Of course, that's what it is. Yeah, elementary and, school. <laughs> and I think it's really important that it's obvious that Skylar does not like Clark because she tells him to go away. Yeah. Like Clark, I think in his warped brain is like, I'm going to protect the girls and they're going to like me for it from this guy. You know, I, I also think Clark has hit on her before. Absolutely. Right. It's, you sense that this is not the first time he's tried to do something at this bar, even around. Yeah, Skyler. he's he's totally trying to knight in shining armor her right now. Right. That is what he, that is. That is his total motivation at this moment. So, John, a thing you've talked about many, many times on the show is status. Yes. And what I find really interesting about this is that Clark, a Harvard student, mm -hmm. much like a Stellan Skarsgård character, has status because he is a Harvard student. You know, he's right. like a grad student. Yeah. He is talking to a way bigger guy with bruises on his face. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's a whole way that men decide status that Clark has nothing to bring to that conversation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he is, there's another scenario which Chucky just kicks the shit out of Clark. You I know? think if we're in a different area of Boston, Clark's yeah. in the bar. Oh, of course. Clark is in this bar because it's a Harvard bar, so the violence aspect of it all isn't really a factor, right? Because intellectuals supposedly abhor violence. Um, and so he thinks he's on – he thinks he's in power in the situation because yeah. he can outthink Chucky and he thinks he's going to be able to do so. And and Chucky thinks it too, like because because yeah, Chucky is in the he's in the place that is not comfortable to him. So he's he's pulling back his status, even though yes. he knows that he could kick this guy's ass. That's not what's called for in this moment. He's he's smart enough to know that, so he knows that there's a status game going on, and the status that he has in in you know sheer 
you know, size has nothing to do with anything that's being talked about at this moment. Because this isn't a first venture, right? I'm sure they're like growing up, they have heard the stories of their dudes from their area of Boston, of Southie, who go into these bars and then like one of them gets into a physical fight. It's the cops who are going to beat up the dudes from Southie over the Harvard guys because the Harvard guys have daddy and mommy protecting the lawyers, the regents, the teachers, the school itself from these, you know, low, uh, low level people who they think are low level people. And just, and just is adjusting his behavior. You're right, Karen, to kind of like get out of the situation. Cause he know he knows he's in over his head in the situation. He can't rely on his fists. So he's got to pull himself out of this thing. Yeah. And just the position of privilege of being, you know, a white educated, you know, sort of upper class, upper class, rich, whatever, you know. And then Clark is going to try to give the intellectual, you know, knockout punch. (laughs) I was just hoping you might give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the Southern colonies. My contention is that uh, prior to the revolutionary war, the economic modalities, especially in the Southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as... The Matt Damon moment after this is might be one of my all-time favorite moments on film ever. <laughs> just the way that he handles him from start to finish on the scene is just beautiful. <laughs> you know what just occurred to me is there is the cliche, uh, it's like the, the fantasy novel or fantasy movie cliche of your unknown hero walks into the tavern and the bully comes along and then you see what a badass your hero is and it's in everything that's exactly what this scene is it's Mm -hmm. just the intellectual version because he steps in and 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 as soon as you you see him kind of in the background and then as you see him step forward it's just there's just a feeling of Yes. Of course that's your Hang on a You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Moxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. By the way, Peter Garrison is the name of the guy who helped them with all the history stuff. What's so great about it is that you know he's a math genius, but we have no right. idea that this other stuff is in there. Like, this is a complete out-of-left field. Like, I, I don't think I ever expected that. Like, I, you knew he had the math in him, but you just didn't expect that he was going to be able to do this. I mean, I, I think there is a level of Will's intellect and the way they treat it that is, you know, in the superpower fantasy realm, you know, but the fact that he not only says, I know the thing that you, where you got the thing you just said, but I know the next five steps down your intellectual career. You're going to be convinced of that till next month when you get to James Lemon, then you're going to be talking about how the economies of Virginia and Pennsylvania were entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's going to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital forming effects of military mobilization. And I love that the guy who's sputtering Clark tries to argue back a little bit. Well, as a matter of fact, I won't because Wood drastically underestimates the impact Wood of social dis- Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers. Work in Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I read that too. And you're like, holy oh. shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love his next line. Were you gonna plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? By the way, there's a moment in this where Matt Damon goes up on his lines and he kind of looks to the side and hesitates for a moment and then comes back. And it's one of those things where he did forget his lines and it makes it feel more natural 
it, it improves the acting with that moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own, as your own idea, just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend. And then he, and if that wasn't enough, he says, "See, the sad thing about a guy like you is, in 50 years, you're gonna start doing some thinking on your own, and you're gonna come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that." And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> That's a great line. It's great. I mean, this whole—it is literally intro- the introduction of a superhero. You know, it's a great point. I never even saw it that way, but you're absolutely right. Coming in to save the day, and then, but then this is a superhero that's a little more of a street superhero. Yeah, because of what's going to happen in this exchange next, but. It's so perfect the way he handles Clark here and, and um, beats him. He beats him on, on both fronts, intellectually and physically. And then later, uh, oh, on, the basic, yeah. on the basic uh. man level of getting the numbers. Yeah. So, and then it's like we already disliked Clark. I mean, there, I don't think there's anyone on Team Clark in the audience. <laughs> and certainly, <laughs> Skyler's not on Team Clark. But man, just to make it worse, he take he gets the beat up and then comes back to an obviously superior intellect. Yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-through on our way to a skiing trip. What a dick! I mean, like <laughs> it's just a massive dick thing to say. Okay. And then, and this goes back to John, what you were just saying is the physical, because yeah. Will takes that in, says, "Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal." But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. The way he does it, there's such a confidence. It's This is how you know you're in trouble if someone comes up to you and just quietly goes, well, we can go outside. That's yeah. – you're in trouble. Okay? The one that uh, the one that makes a big deal about taking you outside or meeting you outside, he's not going to kick your ass. It's the quiet one. And that's scary because he's already confident walking into the fight and you're toast. And the thing is – and I want to throw this out because this occurred to me as we're talking about it now, just now. It never occurred to me before. As you talk about this scene, you say, like, you know, Clark's a dick. He is. But Clark reverts back to the thing he knows, just like Will reverts to the thing mm. he knows, violence. And the thing Clark knows is status. That's what he right. can Superiority. Rely. Right, superiority. No matter what happens uh, between our exchange, you're going to be working at McDonald's and I'm going to be, uh, you know, living the high life. And you fucking know it and I fucking know it. So it's his way of trying to reclaim the upper hand because that's his defense mechanism. And then Will says, maybe, but, you know, we can step outside. So he knows in a way he's lost the back and forth a little bit. I know a lot of people think Will wins here, and he does, but he's also lost a little bit by going like, but we can go outside and handle it. Mm. By reverting to the violence, Will hasn't quite grown, right? This is the arc. We're seeing Will revert to violence too many times. And he's got to actually turn that off if he's going to really get out of this culture and this area of his life and move to a next level in his life that's much more, um, I don't know, can be much better for him and his growth as a, as a man, as a human being. So I know we've always seen this scene as a will win, but as I'm looking and thinking about it now, both of them revert back to their uh, base defense mechanisms you know? yeah that i hadn't thought about it that way either but that's that's a great a great point and it, it's funny I'll, I'll just say having have i i have certainly known people that grew up with tremendous privilege 
and had tremendous education stuff. And I've known people that, you know, came from very uh, difficult backgrounds. And while certainly people that grew up in privilege had the, the privilege of, of, of great education, yeah. there is no correlation between intelligence. I've seen some really dumb people that were super rich and privileged and well-educated. And oh, yeah. I've seen some unbelievable intellects, brilliant, creative people that came from nothing. There's yeah, no, nothing. yeah. Um, the, the, no correlation whatsoever. I love, by the way, at the end of this moment, you know, Clark crumples basically and says, no, 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 it's no problem. And then just the, I like me now. It's the Affleck. My boy's wicked smart. <laughs> wicked, wicked smart. It's later. And Skylar and her friend are walking out, and then she stops. And I love Casey says, I swallowed a bug. Which is a, re- <laughs> a Heart of Darkness reference to Brando from Apocalypse Now. And he goes away. <laughs> this Skylar moment is, I, I think I think every woman at some point would, would, love, would love to have this moment that she has right here. You're an idiot. What? You're an idiot. I've been sitting over there for 45 minutes waiting for you to come and talk to me. But I'm tired now and I have to go home. And I couldn't sit there anymore waiting for you. It's gr- I, I, I'm going to say I love uh, Minnie Driver too much. but <laughs> This is an actress who is in that young prime. And watch her body. And, you know, you know Steve, I, I always watch actors when we're having our conversations. Watch her body. She is all she's moving towards the door mm-hmm. then makes the move towards Damon, right? It's almost as if her mind is processing the thought patterns here and her mind says, no, you know, call him out. And she makes the move. And I love that. It's a great difference, right? Cause she is, she doesn't go just from the bar right to him. She's moving away and then makes the, takes the chance, which is a nice little subtle uh, introduction to an element of Skylar's character. She actually is much more humble than you think. She's actually much more um, vulnerable and nervous than you might think. So she's taking the chance here. But, to, but what I love about her is she she is vulnerable, but she's also got that strength to her too. I mean, like, you're that, I was getting to that. that. I was getting that, to that. Like, yeah, yeah, that moment is such a beautiful thing because, for especially I think back then, it's hard to think back, but I know for myself back then, I certainly yeah. would not have had the confidence. Um, at her right, age. And that's what I was and, getting at. Yeah. That she has the vulnerability and then has the confidence to go because she, the way she presents it in a way of like, you're an idiot. She, she's essentially turning around what some men do to women, that nagging thing. She nagged him in that moment. Exactly. Said, you're an idiot. I've been sitting here. You should have blah, blah, blah. So she's putting it on the table in essence and covering up her, maybe her vulnerability or fear of doing this by coming off in a strong way and a confident, which is great. Yeah. yeah, and it's beautiful think- to see that in a woman, uh, like I said, in, in, mm-hmm. of that time, because you you start to get a sense of of, of how much power Skylar could have if she buys into her own power. She you, you right. you're seeing you're seeing the evolution of her character as a student, you know, and 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 because because that's a very very pivotal age range, especially for women to try to come into their power in a time when we were not really taught to come into our power. And so most of us were taught to, you know, something to, to, to really hide, yeah, hide our power. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the things that my father said to me over my lifetime, you know, of, of telling me that I was, could be anything I want to do, but then also showing me other things like we women, 
especially back then. We're taught a lot differently now, I hope, and I think. Um, but we were we, we were definitely taught to be more under the radar and to let the men lead and to and to not stand up for ourselves and to not make moves for ourselves. And and I love that with her in that moment because, like you said, John, I I love that she is starting to leave. Yeah. But then there's something in her mind that says, no, I can't, I can't just leave. I need to go back and do the thing because it's okay. It's okay for me to call him out. In fact, if he's half the person I expect him to be and want him to be, this will be the thing that makes him want me. And that's a beautiful thing because it's not shown very often um, especially, like I said, back then it's, it's, I right. think it's, there's more, there's more female characters out there now at, at young ages that are shown coming into their power, but it was, it was such a thing. And like you said, what's great about Skylar too, is that she is so vulnerable. Like she's, she's this beautiful combination of incredibly weak and incredibly strong at the same time in a way that we're taught we're not supposed to be. I think Mini Driver manages to create a character that is simultaneously comes from obviously a, a wealthy background mm-hmm. and is very smart and is super down to earth. Yeah. Is definitely has uh, some insecurities that she has to overcome and is incredibly brave and is totally comfortable being goofy, which we're going to see more and more oh later God. on. Like, like that's a, how much stuff does she get in? And we're seeing all of it in the scene. And after just some moments about, you know, her saying, I had to go, uh, waste some more money on my overpriced education. And I, and I love how Will's sort of trying to back off of that right. with her. And then she basically, the same beat work of her being about to leave and coming back and saying, you're an idiot, she kind of does again. Yes. Because she has her number. Yep. But she hasn't, she's hoping that he will ask for the number. Yeah, yeah. But when he doesn't, she goes, uh, okay. There's my number. So maybe we can go out for coffee sometime. All right, yeah. Maybe we could just get together and eat a bunch of caramels. When you think about it, it's as arbitrary as drinking coffee. And I, and I love her sort of, oh, yeah. And then she walks away giggling. Yeah. It's a great intro. Will. <laughs> and then it's later on. We're outside. We see <laughs> Clark in like a Baskin Robbins, I think. And this I be- is. I believe. I believe it is a Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, it's a Dunkin' Donuts. Right. Oh, it's a Dunkin'. Because right. come on, Boston is all about their Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Will walks up. And this is one of the great moments. <laughs> yeah. He says, through the glass. Do you like apples? Yeah. yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? I mean, yeah. That will it's, always it's, be, I, I don't care how many other great moments there are in this film, that will always be the moment that I come to first on this film, is him no. smashing the window, banging on the window and then smashing the window, and how do you like them apples? It's just beautiful. Especially yeah. because Will didn't, cajole her into giving her his number or number right it was her giving the number voluntarily putting it on the table so there isn't some kind of conquest i beat you man it's more a matter of like yes i won but i won because she came to me she gave me the number see this so there's a difference in that you know and and i think there's a a nice power in that moment too and then we cut to a driving shot it seems like they're driving into dawn with our group of friends. This is uh, Elliot Smith has a lot of songs on this on this soundtrack. So good. And this one is No Name Number Three. Uh, this, by the way, is the first day of shooting. <laughs> right. Interesting. His, his driving Let's get shot. In the car. We're gonna drive around for a while. 
And then we oh. cut to like the work shed on the MIT campus and Tom and Tom and Jerry walk in. I'm not going to be able to forget <laughs> that now. Um, and there are, t- and again, it's that class structure because here we have the intellectuals coming to talk to the working men. And what's so funny is I think Lambeau is so used to walking around in this cloud of his fame in the very small world that he doesn't know how to deal with people at all. I just need the name of the student who works here. No students work for me. What, could you please check? <laughs> and then I love that he, he says, I have this guy who works in my building. He's about this high. Which one is your building? Like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. You know, they don't care about him. Yeah. Uh, Great and, cast and, these two guys. Great well, and, and And Tom says something like, well, this is Professor Lambeau. And then the other guy's like, well, this is Professor whatever his name is. It's like. And I love, so like you have Tom, who's like the hype man, you know, trying to. totally what Tom is. He's a hype man. He's trying to like show, no, this is a great guy. And then I think Jerry in like the most faux humbleness goes, no, Tom, please. It's not, it's not important. You know, don't worry about it. Well, he didn't show for work today. Got this job through his PO, you can call him. PO? Yeah, parole officer. This movie is set up so well. Hmm. It's funny too, I can't remember what I wh- where I read it, but it is it is interesting of how did his parole officer end up getting him a job at MIT? Like that's well, very pointedly, specifically, well, you know. It's a janitor, so like but maybe he's MIT in Southie, like. Right, but maybe MIT is a program for people who are coming. Like, you know, how colleges like to be progressive. and Yeah. yeah, But, I mean, it is kind of dangerous, obviously, to make someone a janitor at a college with access to young students or whatever, but... It's, it's a, also just know, like it's, it's a it's a it's a far commute. It's just it's just interesting yeah. that that is I, where he is. You know, I am one one hundred percent certain I know how this happened, which is Will made it happen. Will because yeah. Will chose to be at MIT. He, well, that's he, what he, I'm he, saying. That's what, yeah. that's what I'm saying is that it's it's clearly like if Will had anything to say about it, this is where Will was going to end up being the janitor. So, you know what I mean? So he, well, and it's like, you know, you're on parole. You do need to have a job. The parole officer wants you to have a job. And Will comes in and says, look, there's this job at MIT. All the paperwork is all filled out. They do blah, blah, blah. And the parole officer goes, sure, I don't care. So uh, Lambeau walks into court and there we have Will. And again, this is where like his genius is. He knows apparently all things. <clears throat> Your Honor, Henry Ward Beecher in Proverbs from the Plymouth Pulpit, 1887 said, 1887. and I quote, this is excuse me, century, excuse me, I am afforded the right to speak in my own defense, sir. By the Constitution of the United States, this is the same document about which the guarantees my liberty. The United States. Now, liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. And then we hear, son. My turn. <laughs> and the judge starts speaking. By the way, this guy's name is Jimmy, Jimmy Flynn. He's a huge teamster. Karen, he's in your union. Wow. He apparently, if you were making a movie in Boston at this time, you knew Jimmy Flynn. Like he was just a powerful guy in the teamsters. I mean, Jimmy Flynn was born to be a teamster. There's no more teamster <laughs> name other than Jimmy Hoffa than Jimmy more Flynn. Possible. Like that teamster is like. Name than Jimmy Flynn. Uh, <laughs> and I know a lot and, of teamster names, trust me. <laughs> and he, as a supporting character, comes in, has, I don't know, 30 seconds, and is a 100% fully realized character. I've been sitting here for 10 minutes now looking over this rap sheet of yours. I just can't believe it. June 93, assault. 
September 93, assault. Grand theft auto, February 94, where apparently you defended yourself and had the case thrown out by citing free property rights of Hoss and Carrick from 1798. Which, by the way, Matt Damon mouths that as he says it. That's true. He does. And he goes on with the rap sheet. Uh, and now you have Lambeau reacting to who this guy is, you know. I'm also aware that you've been through several foster homes. The state removed you from three because of serious physical abuse. That's the first time we hear about that. You know, another judge might care, but you hit a cop. You're going in. Which, you know what? I'm kind of on the judge's side on some level. You know, this super smart kid has used his smarts to avoid the consequences of, it sounds like, a lot of crime. Yeah. And then we cut to Skyler. Hey, uh, it's Will. Who? And then we see that Will is in an orange jumpsuit making this call from jail. You know, the really funny, good-looking guy you met at the bar the other night? I don't recall meeting anyone who matches that description. I think I'd remember. Oh, all right, you got me. It's the ugly, obnoxious, toothless loser who got hammered and wouldn't leave you alone on it. Oh, well. <laughs> I love how flippant and comfortable and casual he is making this call to her from jail. Like it that again just speaks to who he is. Like he's almost more comfortable calling her from jail than he would have been calling her from home. I don't think he ever would have <laughs> called her. I, 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 you know, yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe if he thought, maybe he only called her because he thought he wasn't going to get to see her, you know, I love, she asked him what's up at just as this person is walking down the corridor. Hey, what's up, baby? You want some of my ass? Perfect. I remember you from Juvie. How you doing? Yeah. Jesus Christ. It's craziness. And at the same time, he's asking her on a date. Yeah, sure. Where are you? Um, well, actually, this is a this is just a shot in the dark, but uh, there's no chance that you're uh, pre-law, is there? <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to an interrogation room, and Jerry's there, and Will is brought in, handcuffed, forcefully pushed into the chair. Nice talking to you. Oh, and his, fir- his first line to Stellan Skarsgård is, What the fuck do you want? I'm Gerald Lambeau. The professor you told to fuck himself. What the fuck do you want? <laughs> Basically, he lays out a deal that the judges agreed to release him under his supervision for two conditions. First condition is that you meet with me every week. What for? And while this is happening, Will is trying to light a cigarette with handcuffed hands. Go with the proof you're working on and get into some more advanced. Lambeau takes the matches away and lights it for him. Combinatorial mathematics. And Will's response. Sounds like a real hoot. <laughs> and the second condition is that that you see a therapist. And Matt Damon's reaction, who laughs, he manages to laugh and look angry and vulnerable and defensive all at the same time, I think. All right, I'll do the math, but I'm not going to meet with any fucking therapist. It's better than spending that time in jail, isn't it? There's a pride factor here for Will. So yeah. And honestly, I don't think I don't think Will thinks it is better than spending time in jail. I think Will understands spending time in jail. He doesn't understand. He doesn't want to deal with that. Yeah, therapist. and also Yeah, right. He doesn't want to get he doesn't want to deal with that shit, like to get fixed. You know, I'm yeah. smarter than everybody on the yeah. world. Or who's gonna fix me, you know? And the other side of it is too, is I don't want to be dependent on some fucking intellectual guy from MIT. Like I don't want to be in his pocket, you know. Well, and I think the big thing 
I think Will doesn't want to say the things and face the things that he has not faced his whole life, you know? Yeah. Like, I think Will, it's not just that Will goes, hey, I'm not crazy. I think Will goes, I can't go there because thing because oh yeah so no, that's bad. that's what yeah. i'm saying yeah like it's not about it's not that he thinks he's better than the therapist he doesn't want to go down that road yeah. like he doesn't want to delve into those depths and bring up all that shit he's just figured out how to put it all down all these all these years and he's fine right he's fine now so why yeah. why dig it up so in the next scene we are now at mit he's working with his professor uh the professor writes some stuff on the board will goes to the board and it's obvious that they're both operating at a super high level, having fun with incredible math while Tom sits watching from the sidelines. Um, and then Poor Tom. <laughs> they sit down and Jerry puts his arm around Will and rum, rubs his head as Tom watches. So several things. So here I saw this scene uh, watching it this time and I went, I feel like this scene is too early in the movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're too close. I feel like there should be a, a breaking in scene with him and Stellan and I even think that he that Will should have Gus you fucked up the movie Gus are you listening Steve Morris well, here's, <laughs> here, here's why I bring it up well I probably would have brought it up anyway but then I'm listening to the commentary track which is yeah. Matt and Ben and Gus and Ben says I really think this scene is too early in the movie <laughs> and Ben is and, a director now yeah and, <laughs> and then Matt it was very clear that this was an argument they had on set this was a scene that wasn't in the script. It was added to show more of the relationship. And then Ben argued against this scene. Right. And I think Matt wanted the scene. And this is how movies are made. You know what I mean? It's like, well, when does that scene happen? And how does it happen? And how quickly does this, this, this relationship advance? Yeah. And there's not right answers. You know, like I was kind of on team Ben, but the movie's great. The scene is really good. The, the only place I concur with you is, is the, is the head thing, like up, up, up to the point where the, the, the ruffling of the hair, I think that's the place that takes it a little further than he might've earned at that point. But, but I mean, you, you get the sense, or at least I get the sense right away that, that Will is actually enjoying having someone on his level to yeah. spar yeah, with yeah, a little yeah. bit, you know? So even though he, he might not, ever fess up to that there's some portion of him that is really enjoying having that play so it's so that part is definitely believable to me right away it's just the ruffling of the hair i don't know that he would have let him do that and now will's back at his place he's reading a book he smiles to himself and as he turns the book over we see a picture of george plimpton (laughs) and then we cut to will sitting in a chair um I love this sequence. It's so fun. I read your book, and uh, and and Mike was having the same problems that Chad, the stockbroker, was having. Then we cut to George Plimpton, his therapist. Absolutely right, right on the button. Good for you, Will. Very nice. This is incredible casting, mm-hmm. Karen. When you when you're going to cast a part like this, like, is there? Do you usually get pressure from the director or the producers to, you know, go after someone like George Plimpton or is that does that come from the casting director? What do you think? I mean, I think it totally depends on the project. There's definitely times where we are asked to stunt cast things like that. Um, But usually one of the best parts of our job as casting directors is going, who could be really interesting (laughs) in this piece? Who could be really interesting in this moment? And especially, you know, if you're good at your job, um, which all of us, I think, aspire to be, is that finding someone that... um, you can you can go two ways. You can you can find the perfect person that that archetype of what you think is exactly what the author 
wants, but then there's also the, you know, playing around with it and finding somebody that's completely antithetical to what you would expect in that moment. And, and both can be really fun, you know? Well, Plimpton, in one line, you know who this guy is. Well, the pressures, and I'm not judging them, I'm not uh, labeling them, but they are destroying your potential. There are no more shenanigans, no more tomfoolery, no more ballyhoo. The way he uses all those terms are just great. <laughs> I, I use that quote all the time. Like all, I go, "All right, gentlemen, no more tomfoolery, no more uh, hijinks, no more ballyhoo." You know, I do um, with the geek buddies all the time to get us ready before we. <laughs> uh, ballyhoo, by the way, that's Plimpton's line. Yeah, that's his. That's is. his addition to the thing. Um, do you think when you saw this the first time? that you immediately knew Will was messing with him or that he suckered you in a little bit? Um, to me, I was not sure where we were going, right? So I I bought into what Will was doing a little bit. And then, of course, when he starts the dancing thing, that's when I, or the music or yeah. whatever, that's when I was like, okay, this is... For, for me, I think I do totally get sucked in because he's saying, you know, I hide things, I hide from people. And you can see Plimpton like a, like a shark, like a predator, ready for the attack you know what i mean like yeah. he's like oh i found something and he's pushing him you hide do you no no i mean i like i i go places i interact you know really what sort of places just certain clubs more it's nice yes what sort of clubs like uh like fantasy and when he says fantasy plimpton's character gets suddenly more interesting you know oh talk more like that and then and then john it's totally yeah when he starts dancing he goes you get that beat that bum 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 boom you know, you start dancing. Boom, it's boom, just, boom, yes. And Plimpton is just all <laughs> over it. And then out of nowhere, Will says, Do you find it hard to hide the fact that you're gay? And the reaction. What? what? <laughs> it's so good. What? Look, buddy, two seconds ago, you were ready to give me a jump. Then we cut to Professor Lambeau again coming on to a woman. Again, Stellan Skarsgård's idea. Uh, and that those kinds of little things just add so much. And... Yeah. Plimpton comes out and and basically says, I can't do this. What's what's fun for me, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, but like what I think they capture with his character is what we think of when we think of that type of therapist, like that that exact sort of like looking for those little moments and just like grabbing onto them and then like needling in a little bit further. And I think he's so good at being like the perfect encapsulation of that type of therapist, which is personally for me exactly the kind of therapist i don't want to talk to some people respond well to that i don't know just to be real clear is george plimpton's character gay and in the closet yes Agreed. yeah i think so <laughs> i cuz cuz what's so amazing that again the superpowers of will's intellect is that he is able to immediately find someone's weakness and sum them up and attack yeah. where that weakness is uh and then we cut to Again, Will is now lying down, and now he's being hypnotized. And again, I feel like it sucks you in a little bit. Something's in my room. What is it? It's like a, uh, it's a figure. It's hovering over me. It's, it's touching. Where is it touching you? It's touching me down there. You know, it gets into, you know, physical and sexual abuse, and you're like, oh, my God, like, this is... And then there's this moment. We start 
dancing, the dancing is beautiful. Cause we can make a lot of love before the sun goes down. And the transition into, oh my God, he's singing Afternoon Delight is amazing. Sky rockets in flight, afternoon delight. Hey, afternoon delight. I, I had actually forgotten that because Steve knows that is that moment when he does um, afternoon delight is probably Steve's Steve's quote is retainer. Mine is afternoon. I will just bust out into afternoon delight, you know, and just I'd forgotten that that was not with Robin Williams. I forgot yeah. that that was with one of the earlier therapists. And so when it came up, I was just, um, I was giddy on my couch laughing at that moment. I also find it interesting, by the way, that Professor Lambeau is in the therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think very, um, I don't know. It's, it's very telling about his need to control the situation. Exactly. Yeah. He's not, he's not doing this for Will. He's doing this for him. And that he doesn't see Will as fully human with full human rights on, yeah. on some level, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's more about, um, since Will is in his care, it's, 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 it's a responsibility thing too, as much as anything else is like, he wants to make sure that whatever is happening with him, he's aware of it because he's responsible for it, you know, cause he's, he's that kind of person that right. is just like, well, if I'm going to be, you know, responsible for him, I'm going to be responsible for him. So needless to say, another therapist is out. I think they actually shot some other ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, I have a quick question for you guys. Have either of you, I, I know that I have, have either of you been under hypnotherapy? No, no. Yeah. It's nothing like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I've only done it a couple of times, but I do not believe that someone would take me back to a place where I would be like, you know, full on, you know, squawking like a chicken or any of those kind yeah. of things. It's a, it's a much more, just getting into your subconscious and teaching you things to help you with stuff that you're already working on. It's not generally that kind of, that's, that's what, you know, movies and and television try to get us to believe. But I, I I find it really difficult to believe that anybody would really go down to that place. (laughs) Were you ever tempted to burst into afternoon delight? Nope. Can't say that I have been. Then I don't think you were really getting the most out of your hypnotherapy. (laughs) I'll talk to my hypnotherapists about it. (laughs) I, I, I didn't do hypnotherapy, but I did regressive therapy, which was mm. took me all the way back to when I was seven years old in element or yeah in elementary school. And did it was, did it work? Did it get yeah? There? It really did work because it it all went all the way back to this one, and it's like this incident is the reason why you're constantly seeking approval in all these things when you go forward from it. That's why you've always struggled with this because of that moment. Interesting. And they use those, uh, they use like the buzzers they put in your hands and they do a ping pong sound that goes back and hmm. forth where you have headphones on. And then it increases, slows down, increases, slows down as the therapist taking you back. And it doesn't happen all in one session. It's a slow build to where you get to the, when you get there, you're absolutely shocked that you got there because you're so skeptical really going into it. Like there's no way and blah, blah, blah. And that it really works. So it wasn't oh, hypnotherapy, but it was regressive therapy all the way back to that oh. moment. And so it's been, it was well, maybe, that's, maybe that's what they should have been doing is regressive therapy with it yeah, instead of hypnotherapy. Yeah. Cause I think it hypnotherapy is much more just about surface stuff that you're trying mm. to, you know, work on. So what's interesting to me is that 
these are clearly the wrong therapists for Will. But <laughs> Will think? takes that to mean that I don't need therapy because I can destroy these people and see through their facades means that I'm not fucked up. You I know? think you're being too kind to Will. <laughs> I think these could have been good therapists for Will sure. because Will outsmarts Sean in the first interaction, which totally. we'll get to a little bit later. It's just Will being uh, a stubborn asshole and relying on his intelligence and because he can outthink somebody. Then, so maybe you're right. They're the wrong people because they don't counter like Sean does. Yeah. Um, but certainly Will doesn't even give them a chance from nope. the beginning because he doesn't need therapy. It's not, it's not validating. It's just he's creating a hypothesis already and proving it no matter what. Uh, and yeah. I kind of feel bad for the therapist because, you know, helping people is something that people care about. Now, Plimpton is certainly portrayed as a self-involved guy. He's like, I got to be on TV on Thursday. I can't be dealing with this nonsense. Right. So certainly one of those self-involved. But the other guy is like, dude, I got better things to do in my time. He seemed like he was really trying to connect with Will and he was hurt by it. So, and I, I see, and I sent Sean being a jerk off in a way because he's trying to set all this stuff up without like really getting to know Will, you know? Mm. And remember, this is also 25 years ago when, you know, we weren't as, people weren't as open to therapy as they are now. Yeah, Thank, true. Thankfully we've, I think evolved a little bit, at least on that plane. Yeah. We've, we've devolved in lots of others, but at least on the therapy world, um, more and more people uh, are very open to the idea who, who might've been a lot more close to it back then. Well, and maybe strangely enough, one piece of that might be this movie, you know? True. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's a very positive therapy portrayal. True. Um, and speaking of which we cut, and again, it's, we're continuing to do this contrast between Southie and, you know, the and M, the MIT world, and now we cut from you know instead of the red jackets of the MIT world, we're at Bunker Hill Community College, and it's so fascinating to me that here we have Robin Williams standing in front of a class as a teacher, using humor as part of his instruction method, just like in uh, Dead Poets, mm. and yet his character is nothing like that guy. Yeah. You know, like he is so soft spoken and quiet, and and the way that he uses humor is different. And there's really no point for them being in therapy. I mean, hey, if they don't trust you, you know, I'm never going to get them to sleep with you. That should be the goal of any good therapist. Nail them while they're vulnerable. That's my motto. <laughs> oh, good. Everyone's back. Welcome back, everybody. And they all laugh, which is lovely. They, yeah. they, there's clearly that rapport that he can make that joke and his students know that that is a joke and that he is not <laughs> being that guy. And then in walks Gerald Lambeau. And this, again, this movie does such a great job of instantly you get, there's a history here. Hey, Jerry. Yeah, and I think that's all on, on Robin Williams' face. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the presence of greatness. Professor Gerald Lambeau, Fields Medal winner for combinatorial mathematics. Hello. Anyone know what the Fields Medal is? It's a really big deal. It's like the Nobel Prize for math, except they only give it out once every four years. It's, it's a great thing. Um, there's a thing on the blackboard there, Steve, that I read about that I was wondering if you knew about. Nope. All right. I need to read this to you. In his first scene, Robin Williams is standing in front of a blackboard. Behind him, written on the blackboard in chalk, are the words Susser, 1969. In 1969, Williams graduated from Redwood High School, Larkspur, and then continued at College of Marin, Kent, Kentfield, just a few blocks away from the high school. He became acquainted with the drama department there at the College of Marin and performed in the production Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare. Robin Williams' first stage director was the late Harvey Susser. Thus, the blackboard code word seemed to say, hey, Harvey, see this? Now I'm the teacher. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. So I knew everything you just said, except that it was on the blackboard, because yeah. the reason Karen brought this up, and some of you might know, I went to Redwood High School. That mm-hmm. is my high school. Robin, That's my freshman... Figured- I figured yeah. you might know because of that stuff, but I wasn't sure because I never knew that part about what was on the blackboard. I didn't either. Uh, Robin Williams, my freshman year, my drama teacher was Robin Williams's drama teacher, you know, mm-hmm. 15, 12 years later. And uh, and Karen, just a week ago, you and I drove right by College of Marin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right where we were. Um, that's kind of amazing. So how long has it been since we've seen each other? Before Nancy died. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think the way these two actors handle this moment is great. I was in Paris. It was that damn conference. I got your card. It was nice. You do get the history there. You do get that there's some hurt, but you also get that I think Rob, I think Sean believes that that Gary, that Jerry did want to be there on some level. We've all dealt with grief and grief is a weird thing. And people often don't know how to deal with people in grief. Yes. And I think Jerry chickened out about connecting more with his old friend when his wife died and sent a card and Sean was hurt and is now overtly saying it's okay. Let's move on. Mm. I understand. I, that's what I get all of that in those like couple of lines for me. And we cut from there to a bouncy house where Cole Hauser and Casey Affleck are, are fighting. Hey, uh, what happened? You, uh, get leniency or what? I got a uh, probation and then uh, counseling two days a week joke you're a smoothie come on morgan just submit (laughs) yeah this exchange here is really important right because something you brought up earlier in the show in this episode where you said that will seems to be able to always talk his way out of the situation right and just this quick exchange here as you saw with sean and um jerry i think there's a thing here with with chucky and will here because chucky's almost like "Ah, soft you got off soft because he knows will always finds a way to get out of the worst punishment. And those guys have probably gotten worse punishments yeah. doing the exact same thing Will has done. But Will has a way of charming people in court or whatever, as we saw earlier. And so you sense there's this little bit of like anger from Chucky towards Will about that. These scenes mirror each other because they're both like not speaking about the thing that's there mm. in them. And I think that's really great in the construction of the movie, you know? Chucky's obviously much more friendly with Will than Jerry is with Sean, but the exchanges are about not talking about the thing in the room, which will later be talked about by both of these couples between themselves in the conclusion of the movie. You know, this idea of if you've got a winning lottery ticket, you're usually you're abusing it. The thing with Jerry and Sean, uh, Sean later on about, you know, the whole thing that happened, the fight that, that breaks out between them because each one thinks the other one has this approach to life that doesn't make sense. You know, John, you, you just blew my mind in, in so many ways. (laughs) I never thought about that in that way. I'd never paralleled the friendship of Chucky and will to Sean and Jerry that never Mm -hmm. occurred to me. And all of a sudden I went, and I'm sure we've all had this where you have a friend who has behaviors that you think are self-destructive or are wrong or they bug you and you don't talk to them. And, and, and even there's a thing of like, if you have a friend who does a thing that's shitty on some level and they don't get the consequences that you kind of go, I wish they would get the consequences so they could learn this thing, you know? And I think totally Chucky's having that thought of, he doesn't want his friend to go to jail, but he also doesn't want his friend to repeat the same behavior. And then the other thing that, that you made me think of because of with comparing it with Jerry and Sean is 
the seeds of friendship problems in your 30s and 40s and 50s can be planted in your teens and your 20s. Oh, yeah. And so it could very well be that Jerry was judgmental of things, choices Sean was making 20 years ago. I'm sure it was. And Sean was judgmental of some of the shallowness of Jerry 20 years ago. And and just like Chucky and Will, they're not talking about it at this time. And now we see how estranged they are. It's an amazing point you made, John. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I have a question for you guys. What is the relationship of Chucky and Will? Like, how how do they how do they come together? I think they met in first grade. Yeah, that's what I think. I would say so. Because I read something somewhere that called them foster brothers. Like that's they shared a same house together, and I had never thought of that before. Mm. But it makes perfect sense that they might have met in a foster home together, and that they are actually brothers like they are brothers in a way that I maybe the first time that I saw the movie I don't think I thought of them that way but I kind of like looking back on it now and adding that element of maybe they actually shared a house together when they were younger and that even at that the reason the reason that that came up right now is because of what you just said John is that Mm. like think about it even more it's not just the friendship thing it's the brother thing well there's also the connective tissue that if they are foster brothers or at least foster kids that endured the same stuff and found each other, maybe young in life. So they've endured essentially the same experience, Jerry and Sean living together in the same room at the college, experiencing MIT together. So that makes it even more of a connective tissue between these two pairs of friends, so to speak. So yeah, or brothers. Yeah. Yeah, that just, um, I, that blew my mind when I read it. I was like, "Oh, that adds levels to it." And I, I kind of almost wish that they had actually like flat out made that a bigger part of it because I think it it connects them even further to me. I don't know. Um, we come back to the dinner, and the first thing we hear about is that Jerry's explaining about this Indian math genius named uh, Romano John. This boy is just like that, but he's um he's a bit defensive, and I need someone who can get through to him. Like me. Yeah, I like you. Why? Well, because you have the same kind of background. What background? Well, you're from the same neighborhood. And the reaction from Robin Williams to find out that this boy genius is from Southie mm. is amazing. Boy genius from Southie. <laughs> but I also love that Sean is smart enough to ask, how many shrinks you go to before me? <laughs> and he knows who he went to. Let me guess. Barry. Yeah. Henry. Yeah. Not Rick. Sean, please. Mm-hmm. Just meet with we're at Sean's offices. We see Will coming down the stairs through the glass. It's a really nice design. This is all on a set, by the way. It's a poker game with this kid. Don't let him know what you've got. He probably even read your book, if you can find it. I just love that some math genius thinks he's going to tell a therapist how to do their fucking job. Like, <laughs> I just find this fascinating. And yeah, you could say, oh, they're friends. He's trying to have a, you know, talk to him as a friend or whatever. But it's it's as if Sean walked in and was like, well, let me tell you how to do the math problem. Oh, yeah. You should approach this. Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's, it's totally a, a little bit let of me. a condescending insultedness and in thinking that he's on the same level as Sean, no matter what field they're discussing. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, but I feel like that's just a common thing in the world that most people would would think they are much more likely to be able to have an interpersonal discussion with someone about therapy because we all, you know, get that on some level, whereas higher math, we don't. I think that's just a, you know, a common well, human but, thing, too. <laughs> but there's also the thing of 
I am an expert in this one area and get nothing but praise all the time. I yeah, must be yeah. great at everything. I must be intelligent <laughs> about everything. Yeah. yeah. I want to just focus on a couple of words at the end of this line. Mm-hmm. There is a huge difference between Jerry saying he's probably even read your book, which is yeah. just a warning. And he's probably even read your book if he can find it. Mm-hmm. It's a little dig. If he can, It's such a underhanded you know, throwaway dig that's insulting. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to say and that. It, it is. It is very much that that uh, that brotherly. I love you, and yet this is this. I know exactly how to get you. Right. Kind of dig. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. I'm pumped is my favorite part. Would you excuse us? Yeah, please, Tom. <laughs> that Jerry can't even see that he shouldn't be in the therapy. You too, Jerry. Yeah, Sean kicks him out. Sean kicks Jerry out, too, which is great. And now we're going to start our session with Sean. And this scene's incredible. Where are you from in Southie? And Will does not answer and is looking around. I like what you've done with the place. Oh, thanks. Do you buy all these books retail or do you send away for like a shrink kit that comes with all these volumes included? And we know books are a big part of his life. Do you read any of these books? I don't know. How about any of these books? Probably not. What about the ones on the top shelf? you read those? Yeah, I read those. <laughs> well, we do see him kind of speed reading oh, yeah. in, in the film. So clearly he might have read all those damn books if he's a speed reader as well because he's so intelligent. And what's funny is he, Sean says basically exactly what George Plimpton says. He says, good for you. Yeah. And Will gets up and he walks towards camera. And in this amazing shot, he's looking at thing at the books. The United States of America, Complete History, Volume 1. And then as he's looking at the books, there's a very quick shot of soldiers in Vietnam. Yeah. And I think that is critical and they don't put a lot on it at this point, but I think this is critical to Sean's character and critical to what Will sees about Sean's character in this moment. Mm-hmm. Jesus. You want to read a real history book, read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. That book will fucking knock you on your ass. Which, by the way, is totally true. I highly recommend People's History of the United States. Its whole point is we only look at history through the great people who are basically all white men. Mm-hmm. And what if we look at the history of the United States from the people we never talk about? Mm-hmm. It's, it is a great fucking book. I, I can't remember all of it, but there's something in the notes that I read about that, too, that I think... I think maybe Matt Damon was like his neighbor or something. Is Howard Zinn? Yeah, I have to find it, but I I was reading something about that the other day. You know, you'd be better off shoving that cigarette up your ass. It'd probably be healthier for you. So already Sean is a little bit different from our first couple of guys. Yeah. Um, I love Will's response. Yeah, I know. It really gets in the way of my yoga. (laughs) I love that line. And then the first sort of moment where I think... Will has to take a little bit more stock of Sean because they start talking about lifting weights and he goes, what you lift? Yeah. Yeah. Nautilus. No, free weights. Oh, really? Yeah. Free weights, huh? Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Just like that. What do you bench? 285. What do you bench? And Will does not answer. Stop some cold. (laughs) Stop some cold. And he just changes the subject because Sean, this is, uh, I'll say this. This is my favorite scene in the movie. I know people love the, it's not your fault and the, retainer which is a great scene and all these other scenes um uh but for me this is my favorite scene of the movie in fact this i was i was watching it again for the show i started constructing something in my head of a new show for my channel where i would just deconstruct my favorite scenes in a movie and just kind of go through it step by step 
Uh, and this scene is might have been the final like thing that pushed me over the edge to do it because I love this scene so much. So there's so much of a um, play between there's so much of a power struggle throughout this entire yeah. scene between Sean and Will, and Will yeah, is not as out of his depth as you initially think he might be, and neither is Sean. And so it's great to see that as they interact here because um, Will, for all his intelligence, can't match Sean for his combo of intelligence and physical ability, you know. And life experience. Yes, life experience. And wisdom, you know. By the way, I'm going to pull a Steve right here right now and say my notes at this moment was that fucking first scene of them together is everything. <laughs> so I agree with yeah, you 100%, John. Well, and what's so funny is that Will just lost, basically lost the first battle we've seen him lose in a lot of ways. Yeah. With the mm -hmm. weights thing. And then he spots this painting. Yeah, the painting. You paint that? Yeah. It's a real piece of shit. Oh, well, tell me what you really think. Oh, I'm just a the linear and... Impressionistic mix makes a very muddled composition. It's also a Winslow Homer ripoff, except you got Whitey uh, rowing the boat there. It's great. And you can see Sean in the background, smaller, and he's just, if you just watch Robin Williams' performance and the building of tension that's happening yeah. as Will speaks, it's kind of amazing. That's not really what concerns me, though. What concerns you? It's the coloring. You know what the real bitch of it is? It's paint by number. <laughs> Wait by number. Is it color by number? Because the colors are fascinating to me. Are they really? What about that? Uh, we've talked before about this idea of the line, which is what makes us understand screen direction. And filmmakers cross it all the time, but it means that someone who was looking left to right is now looking right to left. At this moment, when Will turns to Sean to start ripping into the painting, they mm. cross the line. Yeah. Oh, which I think is just a great little filmmaking choice. Now I want to go back and look at it again. I think you're about one step away from cutting your fucking hair off. The one flaw in this scene is I think the next line is unnecessary. I think I should move to the south of France, change my name to Vincent. That to me is like explaining the thing that Will just said. Well. To the to audience members who won't know what he's talking about. Right. Well, let me ask you, what do you, what do you think Will is saying in that moment? He's saying you're nuts. You're 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 you repressing horrible horrible pain and right near killing yourself. That's what. Is he cuz he could also be saying that you're a fucking artistic genius. Oh, I don't think he's saying that. I mean, I'm just saying that, but it he could just go said either the, way. The painting was a piece of shit. True. I think he's more, um, he found what he can needle Sean with mm -hmm. and he lost on the weights side of things. So he immediately, he scans, he's like, he's like a Terminator. Yeah, exactly. He's scanning the room for what he can, you know, reclaim his superior stance with Sean on. And then he sees the painting and it's like, you know, and he heads towards the painting and now he starts to deconstruct the painting, make fun of the painting and tries to reclaim his power in the, in the scene by turning strongly to Sean and be like, I think you should cut you just one step away from cutting your fucking ear off. So he's he's goading Sean. Oh, yeah. And Sean says, yeah, you think I should move? Blah, blah, blah. So he's he's meeting Will at Will's reference level. And I, right. I, I, I get what you're seeing, Steve, because it does feel a little weird as a button to the scene. Maybe there was something else. They could have written, but I think he was trying to imply that he's at, he gets Will's reference and Will is not as smart as he thinks he is, you know? Right. Um, uh, and you, do you guys know who, uh, who actually painted the painting? <laughs> no. Was it Robin? It was Gus Van Sant. Oh, oh wow. Very cool. <laughs> so, um, so was that meta with Matt making fun of his movie? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You ever heard the saying, any port in a storm? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that means you. 
And Robin, again, you can hear the edge come into his voice when he says, In what way? And because we can hear the edge come into his voice, Will can hear the edge come into his voice. It's just like you said, John, he's zeroing in Mm -hmm. on, ah, I found a weakness. Yep. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm, a big fucking storm. The sky's falling on your head. The waves are crashing over your little boat. The oars are about to snap. Again, just watch Robin Williams, man, in the background. Yeah. You're just pissing your pants. You're crying for the harbor. So maybe you do what you got to do to get out. You know, maybe you became a psychologist. And now Sean tries to end this. Bingo. That's it. Let me do my job. Now you start with me. Come on. And he starts to go, okay, let's go back over here. Let's stop with the painting. And then Will says, Maybe you married the wrong woman. What's so crazy about the scene is Will is totally right. Mm. And even zeroes in on the wife as the problem. And he is totally wrong in understanding what the nature of that is. I I wonder where he comes up with the wife. Because there's nothing to me that leads me to that next statement. Well, he's a fucking genius. Yeah. So he's yeah, working I mean, on levels that like, we I, can't I almost, comprehend, really. I just I mean, wish that there was a thing that 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 you could see the genius at work because, like, it just comes out of nowhere to me. Um, I mean, it's right and it works, and the rest yeah. of the scene is so hard and awesome. But yeah, maybe you should watch your mouth. Watch it right there, chief. All right. What we can see is a serious fucking red flag. <sighs> Stop. So great. Will sees as I got him. Yeah. Will sees as a green light. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? You married the wrong woman. And in the background, you see Sean take off his glasses. <laughs> he took his earrings off. He took his earrings <laughs> off. We're going to get that. <laughs> I love um, that reference, John. That's <laughs> what he did. He essentially oh, what he did. He Don't took his earrings off. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then Sean makes the weirdest little whistle. Yeah. You, you know, which is just sort of like, seriously, don't go there. Yeah. Like, you're you're in deep shit at this moment. Would she leave you? Was she, you know, banging some other guy? I wish I could remember how I felt, because this must have been so shocking the first time you saw this. Yeah, yeah. Because he, by the throat, slams yeah. him up against the wall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, the look on Matt Damon's face shows it. You know, he was, he was surprised, and not a lot surprises him. Him. Well, and not only is Will surprised, Matt Damon was surprised because Robin Williams was getting him hard multiple times over and over again to the point where apparently he cut him on the throat somewhere. So Matt Damon's bleeding and going like, you know, internally, Robin, like, can you can you lay off a little bit? <laughs> Pull it back. If you ever disrespect my wife again, I will end you. I will fucking end you. Got that, Chief? Time's up. I think there's this weird connection. One of the most profound moments in the movie to me is in the other Sean scene that we were talking about, where he talks about his abusive father, giving him the choice between the stick, a belt or a wrench. And he chooses the wrench. And when Sean asks why he says, because fuck him, which I think is an amazing, incredible bit of dialogue. Yeah, I have that. I have that in my notes too because that that is just that that sums up Will in because perfect I think, perfect simplicity in just that one sentence. Because he steps into pain, you know what I mean, and I think he's continually destroying father figures. Yeah, like that's part of what he does as a self defense. Yeah. The other thing, and, and John, you kind of said this before, but I want to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Will destroys Sean in the same way he did the other guys. Yes. Except more completely, I think. Yeah, but Sean also counters him 
in a number of ways that the other guys couldn't because he's a kid because he's a guy from Southie himself. Yep. So he knows how to play in Will's arena and he knows how to play in his arena. And so he's able to counter almost everything Will does, even though Will does dissect him directly. uh, Sean does the same thing in the counter because grabbing Will by the neck, which of course you don't want to condone violence, but in that moment, that's a man to man thing. And yeah, I know Will's 20 years old, but if he's old enough to shoot his fucking mouth off, he's old enough to get a reaction. And so in that moment, that's how, you know, that's how some men see it. So I think you're saying certainly I, I got a feeling since we saw Will earlier resort to violence to rehash an old uh, bullying situation. Yeah. Violence is and him resorting to violence is not a thing out of the realm possibility in his life. So uh, he can't ask other people to not resort to violence in a certain moments as well. So he responds to it. Will does because Will's the one who says time's up. It isn't Sean. It's Will backing down to Sean in that moment when he says time's up. And that's. That's it's so important. Uh, one of my notes too is the Sean's face at the end of that scene is is just tells you all you need to know because mm-hmm. it's that it's that beautiful combination of I just lost yeah. to this kid. Yeah. But I think part of the difference between him versus the other um therapists is that He's upset on some level that he lost to Will, but I also think he is not upset that he lost to Will because he knows that in losing to Will, he also won because he had this connection with him. And that by knowing that Will could see him so fully in that moment, it made him understand the level of intellect that he was dealing with there. And I think that is what gave him... I think the confidence to then want to continue with him is that, and he saw that Will brought out this, you know, this, this animalistic, this primal thing where he lost it. Like, this is something that I'm sure, I'm sure Sean has never lost it like that with, with a, with another patient ever. Not with a patient. Definitely not. No. And, and, and so losing it with Will in that moment was cathartic is not the right word. It's, it's, but there's a thing that happened there, I think. Yeah. There's something there that, that was terrifying, but also empowering. And I think it really brought Sean in more. Like, I think Sean was reticent about this guy at first, maybe. But then by the end of that scene, I think he sees what he could do with him, how he could possibly help him if Will allows him to, and that he can also get something out of it for himself. Because I think he sees that will trigger those buttons in him. And that might be something that he needs to work on in his profession. Yeah. It may be that he achieves a certain level of respect for will by the end of the session. And there's yeah. look, you guys know professional curiosity is always something that sure. encourages you to, you know, work with someone who may be a bit more difficult than you anticipated. And so there's a sense there, I think from Sean that, um, you know, there's something m- more here. And the fact that Will got this reaction out of him is something Sean has to explore for himself. And we see that as the movie goes on, how he explores that within himself, you know. There are a couple other things. I I know we're talking this scene to death, but as both of you said, this is an incredible scene. We've been talking about the the distance between the world of Southie and the MIT world. We've also talked about the difference between the physical confrontations and the intellectual confrontations. So with the guy from kindergarten, Will throws down physically. Right. When we're in the bar in Harvard, we talked about this, you know, asshole of a grad student yeah. trying to battle intellectually and not worrying about it turning physical. 
you know, because we're in the, and that's where we have an intellectual battle in this scene. It's both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that will tries to defeat the guy intellectually and the guy comes after him physically. Yeah. You know, which is uh, jarring to will at that moment because he's, I, he's he hasn't seen someone with both. Like yeah. that. And will heads out and there's Jerry who says, I'll understand if you don't want to meet with him again. Thursday, four o'clock. Make sure the kid's here. And this it's this that's the difference with the other therapist. Mm -hmm. It's not that Will didn't take him down and, you know, attack. He did. It was the same and took him down even harder. I think mm -hmm. it's that Sean has the compassion yeah. to rather than reject the kid, which is what the other guys did to say, no, he has to come here. That's the difference to me. Yeah. Well, and even more than that to me is that like, if you look at Robin Williams eyes at the end of that scene, as, as Will's walking out, you can see the pain in his eyes of what he just did. Like he feels oh, yeah. mm -hmm. so bad about resorting to physical violence. That is like the last thing he wanted to do. The last thing he meant to do, especially because he knows about this kid's background. He knows like violence was the last thing he ever expected to happen in that room. And you can see how much he wants to take it back. You can see that he will do anything and everything to try to fix that moment. Even if it takes, you know, years he will he will do whatever he has to to make up to will that he did that to him in that moment because yeah. he basically betrayed him the way that all other father figures have in that moment and he can't get past that without trying to fix it i also like the way this is shot at the end because van sant places the camera just just inside the doorway mm. and we're seeing sean from behind and sean looks smaller than we've seen him before. And of course, Stellan Skarsgård is a tall guy coming up next to him, uh, accentuates that smallness, but he is almost crumpled in from the shoulders in, you know, contemplating what just happened and certainly trying, probably trying to call himself down. You know, people may not believe this. And certainly I'm going to say this, like when you have an outburst and when you have a moment of physical violence for whatever reason, um, and I don't mean like biting, beating someone up or maybe that too, the aftermath afterwards you're shaken, especially if it's not necessarily in your nature to give in to those impulses. So when you do give in to those impulses, there's a there's like a detox that happens there afterwards where you're really like shaking, trying to figure out what to do, almost a, a mild shock because of what's happened. And so the physical embodiment of that I think Robin is playing. That. I don't know if he did if he did play. I didn't watch the um, you know commentary, but it feels like he's playing that, you know. And so when he shoots his face over to, to Jerry to say Thursday, 4 p.m. You know, he's doing it quickly and then going back to where he's at because that's the amount of interaction he can have. That's the level of interaction he can have in that moment. So it's really well, act, a really incredible acting going on here in that moment. And the way Vance Sant places the camera, which he does. I mean, listen, I'm telling you something. There's going to be a lot of moments in this when we go on that I've, I found myself really watching where Van Sant was placing the camera and how he was moving the camera and the dolly shots, why he used dolly shots in certain moments. And so it was very interesting to watch. And so here in this moment, Sean is smaller than he was when we first saw him. And so it, it helps us to get sympathy or connect to this Sean uh, even more. I know it's Robin Williams, but even more uh, with the character he's created here in this film. Yeah. And the last thing that we see is Sean looking at 
the painting. And yeah. I just want to say something, not for nothing. I know Will describes this painting as a piece of shit, but if he can find all of that truth about the guy who painted <laughs> it in the painting, that's a good fucking painting. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. Wait till he sees Joe Pesci's mom's painting. It's not, I'd like to see him decide, dissect that in Goodfellas. Anyway. And then we dissolve from the painting to some dirty dishes and the camera pulls back and we see Sean sitting at a table. There's a typewriter there. There's a glass of whiskey, neat. He's thinking, he takes a drink. And John, you were just talking about where Gus Van Sant put the camera. <laughs> yeah. Is that the second shot in this scene is this low angle. It's a yeah. really wide lens. So his hand looks really big in the foreground with the drink. Yeah. And he takes another drink and he's almost looking at the camera. He's almost eyeballing the lens, but not quite. And he thinks, and that's the end of the scene. It's such a great mirror. You know, I said how the two pairs of friends are mirror. Obviously, Sean and Will are the mirror to each other, right? Because Will's apartment, which we saw, is just as disheveled as Sean's apartment with dirty <laughs> dishes and unkempt stuff and books all over the place. So in a way, both of their apartments or places that they live are reflective of where they're at in their lives right now. Internally mm -hmm. messed up. Yeah. Uh, uh, unclean, um, not organized. And so, yes, Sean saves Will, but I think Will saves Sean as well by the end of the movie. So they're both, they both kind of find each other at the right time through Jerry's connective tissue there, but it's very reflective. His apartment is just as sparse in terms of what's in it as Will's. And so I, f I find that to be a very strong connection between both of these guys. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't think we'd had a shot of Will on the train ride back home, Will would have been thinking about that interaction as well. Yeah, and I don't think Sean would be going off on his sabbatical if Will hadn't right. helped fix him. I think that they're both yeah. they're both going off on greater things because they've helped each other get yeah. past something. It's interesting in the the the, the shot with with uh, in in Sean's apartment. Um, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, when your first the first shot of the dirty dishes yeah. at at the top of the pile of the dirty dishes is an empty. I believe it's Bushmills bottle, which is then what he is drinking. Bushmills is the right choice of whiskey. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I purposefully looked it up because I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Bushmills. And that is exactly what he should be drinking in this moment. So props to the to the prop department, to the set deck, whoever, whoever was making that. But so you really get a sense that the pain that he's really trying to drink away the pain of the loss yeah. of his life. And, and you really you you get the sense that he is much more pulled together in his professional life than he is in his home life. And this is that one sort of peek into that. And the interesting thing is, even though that was a completely conflict filled scene, mm. we also is the scene where these two characters have come together and we know that this is a key relationship in the film. And I think as we see the beginning of this relationship, it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of Goodwill Hunting. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the movie so far. Check out our Facebook page. Go to Twitter where it's you can look for Enter Incidents, Enterprise, no, the wrong one. Go to Twitter <laughs> where you can look at for Cine underscore files. Instagram is Cinephiles Podcast. And you can, of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or YouTube or Spotify. Please leave your reviews if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. And I'll tell you something interesting. Mm. Sometimes it'll let you make a review again or edit your review there and you that will help us too so maybe you reviewed us five years ago and you go yeah maybe it's time to 
th- throw another review in there. It would really help. Mm-hmm. And if you want to reach me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and Enterprise Incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation. Uh, there is uh, the uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says to go and see everything we have going on there. And my other podcasts, uh, the top 10. And the Geek Buddies uh, and Strong Style on the Hot Mic. Those are all separate podcast feeds for you all. And you might notice if you look at the episode number that this is episode, I believe, 296. 296, John. What? Is getting very, very close. Can you believe we're almost at our 300th episode? That's insane. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And here is what we're going to do. We have decided that we frequently have done Q and A's. Yeah. And so we definitely want you to submit your questions, which you can do to our email, cinephiles1941, the year of Citizen Kane at gmail.com. If you have a question for John or I, we would love to answer it. But this time we're also going to do our Q and A as a live show. So you'll be able to join us. We don't have the exact date at this moment, but we will put it out on social media and we will mention it on our uh, an upcoming episode. And you can join us for the live show for one hour and one hour only. And in the second hour, we're going to move that show from everybody to our patrons. And so the next two segments are going to be patron exclusive conversations with John and I to celebrate our 300th episode. Yeah, exactly. And you want to send your questions to thecinephiles1941 at gmail.com. So the first hour, as Steve mentioned, is going to be everybody and we'll answer as many questions as we can as quickly as we can. The next hour will be the $5 and above patrons will be submitting questions. We'll be answering those. And then we'll, there's going to be a third hour, which we will also be having for our patrons. That's going to be a private Q&A for our biggest supporters at $25 and above. And we're, I think we're still negotiating with that's going to be live or that's going to be one that we do um, uh, and record for and, and release to only our $25 and above patrons. And they are the other ones that are going to be able to submit questions for that particular hour and you get a, you're going to get a little bit more uh, of an answer from us, a deeper answer from us on all your questions for that. So that's kind of how we're looking at this. So if you're looking at the Patreon and you want to jump up and be part of it, uh, now is the time to do that, to jump up and go to a higher level in terms of your patronage so that you can have your questions submitted and selected for uh, this Q&A that we're doing to celebrate the 300th episode. So that's essentially one hour for each of the last hundred episodes, getting up to 300 episodes. Yeah. Uh, And if we can, we're trying to work out logistics, but if we can pull it off, I think it would be amazing to have a live conversation with those 25 and above, because then it's just a really intimate talk with a few people in John and I, which would be absolutely fantastic. So we're trying to work that out. But I have one more thing I have to say before we sign off, and that is to thank our very special guest, Karen P. Morris. Thank you so much for coming back to the show after so many years. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. And I know you don't tend to do the social media thing too much, but if there's, is there some way, something you want to put out there or plug? I'm, I'm not on Twitter, but if you want to reach me on Instagram, I'm Kmo Harmony on Instagram, Kmo Harmony. Um, feel free to reach out to me there. There you go. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.